Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald-faced truth. Well, it was really cool that the World Championships in track and field happened in our state. I think it was pretty cool. Like, I got to tell people, hey, look, World Championship event happening in Oregon, in the Pacific Northwest. And you got to admit, down deep... I was left a little underwhelmed by the impact of the event. It reminded me a little bit, apologies to my soccer friends, but it reminded me a little bit of when my soccer friends try to tell me how big and how important soccer events are. Like they're big and important, they matter to like 15 or 20,000 people, but 20,001, the interest falls off. It felt the same way for the track and field events that happened over a couple of weeks in Eugene. Now, don't take what I'm saying out of context. I think it was cool. But I don't think the rest of the country was really engaged. And I don't think it moved the needle, even in our state, outside of the track and field enthusiasts or those who were curious and went down to see an event or two or three. They'd like to bring the World Championships back to the United States but they're not talking about bringing them back to Hayward Field. Is one time enough for you? Was it worth everything that Oregon went through to bring the event to Eugene? Uh, I want to uh, kick this around a little bit off the top of the show. I have so many things to get to. Big week in the Pac-12 conference. We got Pac-12 Media Day taking place on Friday in Los Angeles. This show will be there. You'll hear from Chip Kelly on this show on Friday. You'll hear from Dan Lanning, Jonathan Smith, all the coaches in the Pac-12, a lot of the players, the star players at least. We will uh, get a visit with George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner, on Friday on this show. It's going to be a big radio show for us as we will be set up on the scene in Los Angeles with what could be the final media day in Los Angeles for the Pac-12 conference. Larry Scott, once upon a time, moved the Pac-12 media days to the Fox Studios 11 years ago in L.A. He called it the epicenter of sports, Los Angeles. I think the event probably ends up moved to Las Vegas in future years. I think that's on the table. I also think Vegas could make a case for being the epicenter of sport as we think of sport. But uh, we'll talk about all that on today's show, plus NBA Summer. I am uh, struck by the absurdity of NBA Summer. A whole bunch of things I did last week I got I to gotta check off the box. I got to talk to you about and share with you. But uh, we have a great show, and I want to start today with the World Championships. Steven, Sean, interns, you guys saw it. You took it in. I think everyone will agree it was cool that it was happening in our region. But did it move the needle nationally did it move the needle even in our state outside of the eugene footprint i want to kick that around did it move the needle for you guys 
I mean, for me, John, it didn't really move the needle at all. I didn't see even much on my Twitter feed about some of the races. You know, I saw a couple of the world records. Uh, I saw the 200 meters go down on Twitter. But, yeah, I didn't see a lot of buzz about it, which is surprising to me because, uh, you know, it seems like it is such a big event, uh, especially for Eugene. But just for me, it just did not move the needle. Yeah, I mean, you're you're talking to uh... – me personally, it moved the needle, um, you know, but I'm I'm a track and field enthusiast, right? So I saw a bunch of my timeline, and uh, it was a huge deal for me personally, and I even went there last night, and it was sold out, and look, I, I think the thing went perfect. I, I really think the, the event went exactly how they planned it. America won 33 medals. Three world records went down. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I do think it helped grow the sport in uh, in this country, and I, help, I think it also... Um, you know, did great things for the University of Oregon, and I think it was a huge success. Um, whether it really moved the needle for casual fans, you know, I I think a little bit. I, I do think it helped a little bit, but I think the biggest area for the sport to continue to grow is TV rights. I mean, there was some nights where you turn it on, and it's on USA Network. Yeah. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I thought I thought the event was about as successful as they planned it. I mean, that, that place was sold out. It was yeah, uh, it was and, fantastic. Yeah, and to my that's to my point. Like I, you know, the Timbers games and the Thorns games, you know, they attract uh, soccer enthusiasts just like you, Sean. I'm not you know trying to say that like for track and field people this wasn't a big deal because it was a big deal for a lot of the track and field people. In the same way, you know, uh, if a women's World Cup qualifying match came to uh, you know, Providence Park, it would be a big deal for the region, for the soccer fans in particular, and it would probably bring in some peripheral viewers. But I don't think it grew the sport at all in the sense that I did not see the rest of the country buzzing about the world championships being here. I didn't – my friends and neighbors weren't – you know, some of them went and saw an event here or there. But the biggest thing that, that moved across my radar was when Devin Allen got hosed by this, you know, the sport that has this weird – uh, false start rule that you know cost him a chance to you know run and set a record and win a world championship and to me that falls flat if your sport's biggest moment or I guess the moment that made the most news was hey yeah there were a couple of world records and also hey one guy got screwed by a rule that should be changed that feels archaic and to me that's where it felt like there were a lot of people who wanted this to be a big event. There were media entities that wanted this to be a big event. They were heavily invested in it. They wanted it to be successful. They wanted to draw in peripheral sports fans. But I think, like, the track and field enthusiasts, the track and field honks who live it, breathe it, know it, loved it. And I think that in the same way that soccer people love soccer – but I don't think that, that the interest, the realm of interest, extended much beyond that other than maybe curious onlookers or people who bought tickets to come see it. Now, I could be corrected if you want to weigh in on it, 503-417-7575. You tell me, did it move the needle for you? But I felt like, now t tell me, Sean, if you think I'm out in left field, like Devin Allen getting hosed in the hurdles and with his false start, that really shouldn't be a false start, to me felt like the biggest news moment of the event, other than it simply being here. And if that is true, you know, to me, that's that's not registering like with fans that are outside of that track and field realm. 
Yeah, that one stung uh, for sure. That one was earlier in the event, and um, you know that we talked about that last week. Like Devin Allen brought in a lot of NFL fans. You know, people that are excited to see him play in the NFL. A lot of football fans were probably watching that night of the event and were disappointed, and probably turned it off as soon as Devin Allen was disqualified. So that one hurt. However. Uh, the, that was not the biggest moment of the event. Um, you know, I think there were a couple household names that that were produced uh, from from this event. Sydney McLaughlin shattered the world record uh, the other night in the 400 hurdles. Okay, she but is, you walk into Safeway and you walk up to the checker and say, "Did you see what Sydney McLaughlin did?" Checker's going to look at you like, "Who's Sydney McLaughlin?" Yeah, uh, there's still a little bit of room for growth there, but I do think that. She that name and then Noah Lyles who broke the American record. I think those two names are the face of the sport right now in America, and I think there was definitely some improvement in recognition of those two names. And I would argue that those were the two biggest moments of the meet: Sydney McLaughlin doing what she did, Noah Lyles breaking the American record in the 200 meters. And I think those two became maybe not household names, but there was definitely a lot more recognition of those two athletes after after these world championships and also a lot of other American athletes. I mean, they swept uh, both sprinting events on the men's side. I think that was a big deal for, for a lot of fans. Um, and they just downright dominated uh, this event. So I, I do think that there was a lot of new names that came into people's minds, maybe for casual fans. As a casual, like the Devin Allen thing was really confusing to me because I had to look it up exactly what happened. Like I always considered a false start to be before the gun. And it took me about you know, 10, 15 minutes of research just to figure out, oh, no, he went after the gun, but he just went too fast. And so I think that's where it lost a lot of casuals was just, well, how is that even considered a false start considering he went after the gun? Like, that's just the kind of stuff that is going to, like you said, it tunes, turns you out if you were not a, you know, not a diehard track guy. Uh, and me as that guy, you know, it did kind of hurt a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, look, I can hear the enthusiasm in Sean's voice. And I have track and field friends who are like, this is the greatest thing. It was here. This is awesome that it was here. And that's cool. I'm not trying to take away from people who enjoyed the event, but I'm looking at it in the same way that I look at an Olympic Games, right? Like uh, every, you know, I've covered five Olympics. I come home from the Olympics. I'm excited about what I've seen because I've been there. I'm talking inside baseball about track and field and uh, what I saw at the pool and what I saw in ping pong and in baseball and softball in some years. And and in the end, uh, I'm, what I'm getting back are blank stares who people looking at me and going, yeah, okay, we, we didn't get to see any of that. We only watched what NBC showed us. And I think one of the problems that the World Championships had was I don't think ESPN bought in on it. Like, I just don't think they were into it. They didn't seem engaged with it other than a couple of moments. So I didn't think the rest of the country really grasped that this, you know, amazing event was happening in Eugene. Uh, I know that, like, you know, the news agencies that are covering it wanted you to be interested in it. They came up with big formulated plans for coverage. And, and uh, you know, as you were driving on I-5 or 205 or whatever freeway you're on, you got to see, you know, I was out at the airport and I saw, like, the, you know, the, the flashing sign that said the world championships are going on. Drive safely. Like, it was a reminder that the event was happening. But I feel like in the end it was a little bit like a big soccer event. Like, sometimes we've had – you know, some different uh, Cascadia Cup and some different soccer events that have happened or or FIFA will bring uh, the Women's World Cup qualifying matches years ago here and, and people got really excited about it. But I always felt at the time, too, that, like, you know, the soccer crowd was into it, just like the track and field crowd was into this. But to 
to your point, Sean, on growth of the sport, I don't think it grew the sport. And, you know, I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to have people go, I didn't care a lick about track and field, and then I watched this thing, and now I am i can't wait for whatever comes next. But I feel like it's just going to be one of these things where we go, it was cool, it was here, it's over now, let's get on to NBA summer, let's get on to the college football season and the NFL season, and then let's move forward. Uh, I'll take your phone calls, 503-417-7575, throughout the show today. Stuart Mandel of The Athletic is coming up. We're going to talk about the Pac-12. He uncovered something on the Pac-12 Big 12 debate that is worth talking about. Again, Media Day coming up Friday. I've got something interesting developing in that world as well. USC and UCLA trying to play some defense in front of Media Day. I'll tell you what I mean coming up. Stuart Mandel, The Athletic, is next as well. I want you to leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, we've been talking a lot about the Pac-12, the survival of the Pac-12, very important, I think, to our region. Stuart Mandel of The Athletic had a great piece today. I referenced it in my own piece. Uh, but he, he went kind of knee-deep on the Pac-12 as it pertains to television. And he looked at the Big 12. He looked at the Pac-12. He looked at using, losing UCLA and USC. How catastrophic was it? Stuart Mandel of The Athletic joining us now. Stuart, thanks for, uh, thanks for making time. Great piece today. Thanks, John. Give me an idea. Like, what sparked you to kind of look at this? And I know that you know you're you're all about college football, but specifically to drill down on television and ratings. What sparked that? I did something similar last summer after OU in Texas left. It was more of a rushed job, though. Um, that only looked at two seasons. You know, realignment is entirely about television and television value. And so, once they lost OU in Texas, I wanted to see how big a discrepancy is it? And the answer was, it was huge. I couldn't believe how poorly most of those remaining big 12 teams did. And that was my first signal that, um, that they were going to be in trouble. And that, because at the time, if you remember 24, 48 hours after there was a lot of thought that they're going to get, you know, the, the ACC or the PAC 12 is going to come in and take some of these teams. And that's when I realized that's never going to happen. So now we're in the same situation with the PAC 12 after USC and UCLA left. So I want to do the same thing, but be a little more thorough about it. And it confirmed a lot of what I kind of anecdotally seem to feel about Pac-12 teams, in particular Oregon and Washington, and how well they perform. But again, I couldn't believe that, for instance, Oklahoma State, and if this is if you strip out their games against the teams that are leaving, would be seventh among Pac-12 teams in average rating. It tells you that while there's a lot of, uh, talk right now about the Big 12 coming in and poaching these teams, the TV data seems to suggest that, that I don't understand why there's this narrative that the Big 12 is in a position to do that. Yeah, and it feels to me like, you know, you look at the remaining television households, even before you start to look at ratings, you're only looking at about 10 to 12 million TV households, uh, you know, before the addition of the four schools that are coming in to the Big 12, but I was surprised to see Stanford so high. Uh, but maybe, as you point out in your piece, uh, you know, there's some other reasons Stanford's up there. Oregon, Stanford, Washington going one, two, three as it pertains to viewers. Uh, did the Stanford mm -hmm. 
Did the Stanford thing surprise you, Stuart? Yeah, it did a little bit, although and then once I kind of looked back at it, I think we get very caught up in, in the moment and recency bias. It was not that long ago that Stanford was putting out nationally ranked teams, Christian McCaffrey, Bryce Love. People wanted to watch them at that time. They've been pretty dreadful the last few years, but there were some really big Oregon-Stanford, Stanford-Washington uh, Stanford games, you know, going back to 2015, which is the first year in this sample. And the other thing is, um, you know, I would hope with that much data that one game doesn't, one outlier game doesn't, you know, affect it too much. But at the end of the day, Stanford plays Notre Dame at home every other year, and that's part of the Pac-12's TV package. And if you're the Pac-12, I know you can't, guarantee that they'll keep playing every the year forever, but that's certainly something I'd be highlighting as you go into these negotiations. You know, you're going to, this is a chance for you to get Notre Dame every other year. Um, oftentimes the last game of the season when Notre Dame has, you know, got a shot at a, at a possible playoff berth. Stuart Mandel of The Athletic is our guest. You looked at Pac-12 after dark, and I think, you know, we all agree as media members we don't love those late kickoffs. Fans will bellyache about them. But you saw some advantages here when it came to ratings. Um, how so? Just in that you're not going up against the Fox game of the day. You're not oh, going up against ABC because those games are kicking off late. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and, and, you know, back 12 fans, I get it. They don't like those night games. And I certainly wouldn't like being in one of those night games if it's buried on FS1. But the ESPN, main ESPN, 10.30 Eastern window does very well. Almost all of those games get a million viewers. There's a fascinating example in there uh, from last season where it was uh, Arizona State, Oregon State, which are not even two of the bigger draws in the conference playing in that 10.30 window, and got a better rating than a Texas game that was played at noon on ESPN2. Um, but that Texas game went up against a top 10 Ohio State-Michigan State game and a, a Wake Forest-Clemson game where Wake was ranked 10th, whereas by the time you get to 1030 at night Eastern, those are often the only two Power 5 teams still playing. So um, that's definitely an advantage the Pac-12 has, but it's not by any means, let's, you know, uh, temper expectations here. Those games do not get anywhere close to what the big noon Fox game gets or what the CBS-SEC game gets. But for ESPN, you know, a million to two million viewers is pretty good. Is it enough? Can it, can it get you within a stone's throw of maybe where they would have been? I, I think the projection was that they would have been around 41 million had USC and UCLA stayed. At least that's what Bob Thompson, the former Fox president, told me. He was thinking about 500 million total split 12 ways. It would get you like 41.6. Uh, can they get to the mid-30s, uh, you know, it, with using ESPN and – and possibly expanding? Yeah, so everybody's got projections like that, and it's hard to, to really pin down a number um, because we don't know what the deal will look like. Um, you know, just just vaguely speaking, I think there's a shot for the Pac-12 to get close to what the ACC makes uh, in that deal they have locked in for a long time. But it's going to depend on a lot of things. And, and one thing I don't think it brought up at all in all these TV discussions is that the Pac-12 network is going away, and they air a lot of football games and a lot of other games, too. And so those games were not part of the last deal that the Pac-12 did. Those are going to be part of – they're now going to be able to sell those games along with, you know, 
the more marquee games. And I don't know what they're worth necessarily, um, but if you're ESPN and you're looking to put more programming on ESPN Plus uh, or another network, frankly, that has a streaming service, that might be worth uh, a little bit more to you uh, than if you're going to be putting that game at some odd hour on one of your more obscure channels. So, you know, I'll be curious to see um, how they're going to structure this thing and also what the schools are going to be willing to do, right? I mean, for most of the last decade, a huge, huge talking point has been the late-night games, and there's too many of them, and the, the coaches and players hate them. They get back late, and there was a hope that in the next TV deal they would do fewer of them. Well, it's desperate times now. <laughs> if you want to pay the bills, you may have to do actually as many, if not more, of those. And so it's just going to come down to what are the uh, ADs and the presidents willing to sign off on. At the beginning, after USC and UCLA leave, it felt uh, a lot of gloom and doom, right? Everybody looking at Oregon and Washington mm-hmm. to see what they do. Do you have a sense or maybe a thought on Oregon and Washington? How should they approach this media deal, as in maintain flexibility, but also they are tent poles of this conference right now, and your ratings numbers show it? Yeah, I mean... I don't think the Big Ten is going to come rescue them anytime soon. If they had, they could have done that already. Um, but you're right. Like, Oregon in particular is kind of carrying the conference at this point. And, and you know, there, are, they a threat to, are they a threat to leave imminently? Not necessarily. But I think the Big 12 is going to come to those Colorado, Arizona schools and say, hey, you know, you can't. If you stay here, they're just going to ditch you at some point. You're going to be in trouble. Um, if I were Oregon and Washington um, and they're you know, team players, they can only be team players to a point. So obviously I know everybody wants the conference to work and to stay together, and hopefully they can sign on to that. But even I wouldn't recommend that they sign some sort of long-term grant of rights. Maybe even not sign any grant of rights. That might not be realistic for the Pac-12 this time around because the sport is changing so much. And you don't want to get yourself in a situation like the ACC, ACC schools are right now. Clemson and Florida State, they desperately want to get out of that thing, and they can't. Um, if in the event the Big Ten decides two years from now that they want to go to 24 teams or you know whatever might be the next big evolution in college football, you want to leave yourself enough of an out to do that. And I feel like they have the leverage to do that. What are the other Pac-10 schools going to say? Well, we're going to kick you out? No, because then – then that conference basically becomes a group of five conference in terms of the money that they would make. Stuart Mandel of The Athletic is our guest. You hit on something there. You're talking about just sort of the, the, the health of college football or the future of college football. There's part of me as a media member that's fascinated by this. I'm interested in it. Obviously, it's, it's crazy stuff that's going on, and it's, it's shape-shifting. But the college football fan in, in me is, is nervous for the sport. Are you? Are you nervous at all about the long-term health of the sport in general? Is there a way that this could end up being great for college football, or do you kind of worry that they're going to kill the Golden Goose? I mean, college football is always going to be extremely popular in places like Tuscaloosa, Columbus, Ann Arbor, the schools that have the biggest fan bases and are going, whatever structure this thing ends up taking, they will be you know, one of the privileged ones. So I worry for the other, you know, 30 to 40 power five fan bases that I think are going to start to feel increasingly alienated. Um, the playoff is going to expand. 
and that's great, and that is going to give more access to maybe some teams uh, that wouldn't otherwise have made it, but there is still a section of the sport for whom, and I'll use my alma mater, Northwestern, as an example, for them, a great season is going to the Holiday Bowl or going to the Outback Bowl. Their fans still genuinely get excited about that, and it's just not going to matter soon. The entire focus of the sport is going to be the playoff and the SEC and the Big Ten in particular. And so what happens to those fans? What happens to Purdue fans? Do they still get, do they still feel engaged in a sport where they feel like they're second-class citizens? That's the part I worry about. Yeah, amen to that. Stuart Mandel of The Athletic with us. George Klyovkov, he's the commissioner now in the Pac-12. How will uh, this cycle affect his legacy in your mind? It will single-handedly define it, you know, and, and really that's what happened to Larry Scott, too. At first, he was getting all the praise for the deal that he made, and then as it kind of unraveled over the years, you know, that's going to always be the thing that's mentioned about his time at the Pac-12 is that, you know, his strategy backfired and ultimately led to where we are now. Um, you know, it's much earlier in his and George uh, Klyovkov's tenure, but basically this TV deal is going to determine whether or not the conference survives. And it's not just in terms of, um, like, the dollar figure, but like I said, there's a lot of different ways this deal will be structured. Is this conference going to go more toward a streaming future? Um, any number of scenarios, right? And then, of course, most importantly, is it going to be feasible enough to keep the conference together? So um, I don't expect it to get resolved. I know it's in this 30-day window. I don't know that it's going to wrap itself up quite that neatly. But certainly within the next few months, we're going to have probably an answer to, to all those questions. And so there's a lot of pressure riding on him right now. I thought it was really interesting today. I had the SID at UCLA and an athletic department rep at USC both reach out to me uh, in front of Media Day uh, just to say, hey, if you have any questions, I'll be available. Stu, I think they were kind of reminding me or maybe trying to head off the possibility that it could be combative on Friday. How, how do you think that's going to go as Chip Kelly and Lincoln Riley uh, appear to, to talk about their teams, but – Everybody wants to ask him about the Big Ten. Yeah, it's going to be really awkward. <laughs> and I'm, it's like an awkwardness that I'm fascinated to see. I feel bad because Chip Kelly and his players and Lincoln Riley and his players and Caleb Wood did not make the decision to go to the Big Ten. Um, it's unfortunate they're going to have to answer the questions. The ADs are there, too, and I really hope that those two ADs do answer questions. Um, and that's, frankly, where a lot of the intrigue is going to be, is the behind-the-scenes figures. Um I hate to say that because, you know, these events are supposed to get you excited for the season. How are the teams going to do on the field this year? But there's one storyline that's going to be the overwhelming storyline there Friday. And at the end of the day, it's not the coaches and players who have um, a direct say in that. Access to the playoff is key. The Pac-12 trying to ensure that it does have access. How big would it be to have Utah or Oregon or USC or somebody uh, sniff around the playoff this season. I think make the playoff. Um, you know, ideally not USC, right? For their right. future, ideally Oregon or Utah or somebody else. Um, I thought it was important for the Big 12 last season that um, Baylor, not Oklahoma, but Baylor won the conference, and Cincinnati, who's coming into the conference, made the playoff. Given what they had just gone through, that was uh, a very positive development for them. Because, like I said, there's a lot of short-term memory going on with the Pac-12. They're in a down cycle. There's no question about that. Um, and in this playoff drought that now goes back to 2016, 
is the first thing anybody mentions with the Pac-12 now. They, they desperately need to uh, end that drought. And like I said, I mean, it'll be very exciting uh, on the West Coast if USC makes it, if, if Caleb Williams and Lincoln Riley lead them to that. Uh, but that it might also reinforce the narrative of how, you know, how much trouble they're going to be in without them. Um, but, yeah, Oregon recruits at a top-10 level. They recruit at a playoff level. I know they have a new coach, and maybe you never know how that first season is going to go. But, you know, if, if nothing else, they want to, you want to know that they can still have that path to playoff and national championship contention even in a weakened uh, Pac-12. Finally, the Big 12 fans are all over my timeline. What's your inbox look like? The comment section on that story is, <laughs> and my Twitter, I guess, is full <laughs> of angry Big 12 fans. And I get it. I mean, first they had first they found out last summer they had all these people telling them how their their teams aren't are very valuable, and now they're getting like a second dose of it with some of a story like mine and some of the other ones that are out there. I don't, I don't, I, I first of all, the Big 12 is a better football conference on the field. Um, it just is. Um, and I, and I like watching big 12 football. I have nothing against it, but the data is what the data is. And I think, I think part of why big 12 fans have trouble accepting it is because of what I just said, you know, Oklahoma state is a much, much better program than Colorado's. How can my numbers show that Colorado does better in TV ratings than Oklahoma state? And, you know, at the end of the day, even bad Colorado is still located in a major TV market. Um, has some history, national championship, Heisman winners, and Oklahoma State is in still in Stillwater, Oklahoma. They've had some great seasons, but they haven't quite broken all the way through. And um, it's just the reality of the situation. I'm not trying to like, you know, dance on anybody's grave. Yeah, I get why people are anxious. Uh, finally, Stuart, uh, some unequal revenue sharing models have been floated out there. I know that the conference. Uh, had long believed that everybody should get a share, equal shares. USC and UCLA were not happy about it at the time when Larry Scott and the ADs and presidents all voted for that. But do you foresee Oregon, Washington, possibly Arizona State, because they're in the Phoenix market, uh, asking for and maybe getting uh, more than an even share? I don't know that Arizona State's in a position to make that demand, but certainly <laughs> Oregon would and possibly Oregon and Washington together, yes. And they may have to do it. Um, it's not ideal. That's how the Big 12 used to do it. That's how the what was then the Pac-10 used to do it. And it causes, it definitely causes resentment and um, just, you know, a, a power imbalance in the room. But, you know, the position for the pac the opportunity for the other Pac-12 schools to be picky and, and in this situation has gone away. You're fighting for survival here. And if you want to keep the 10 together and that's what it's going to take, you know, if, if not having a grant of rights is what it's going to have to take, you might have to suck it up and do that. You know, the Mountain West does that with Boise State. Um, and I know that's much smaller amounts of money we're talking about, but there's a recognition there that without Boise State, the Mountain West is, you know, a, a much worse regarded conference than it is. And also that any of those schools in, the, in that conference, if they have an opportunity to move up, is going to do that. And I don't know if we're there yet or not, but the, the Big 12, the Pac-12 may have to start taking on a very similar model um, because nobody in that room could say with a straight face that if the Big 10 or SEC came calling tomorrow that they wouldn't go. So if that's the reality, then it may make sense to just have a more flexible model going forward. 
Stuart, great piece today. I will see you at Pac-12 Media Day. Keep doing what you're doing, and thank you for joining us. All right. Thanks, John. There he is from The Athletic, Stuart Mandel. Does a fantastic job. You can read him, follow him on Twitter. Uh, an uneven or unequal revenue-sharing model is interesting. I want to talk about that next. Plus, the first major recruit to cite realignment as part of his decision has weighed in today. I'll tell you more about that coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Look, I want to I want to just continue with what we were talking about in the last segment with Stuart Mandel in that if you're looking at unequal or uneven revenue sharing and you're the Pac-12 conference, do you are you okay? Let's just put yourself in the position. If you're Oregon or Washington, of course, you're going, "Hey, uh we have uh held the conference together. Let's just assume that the conference cuts a deal with ESPN and you are going to be uh, you know, the 10 remaining members in one place, let's just assume they're not taking on any additional members, although I think there are a couple out there that I would be interested in exploring. But if you are Oregon or Washington, you're going to argue that you add more value than Oregon State, Washington State, and some others, and therefore you should receive more than an equal share. One scenario that I have heard floated involves... Oregon and Washington or whoever makes a playoff. Let's just say, because those are the last two Pac-12 teams, the only two Pac-12 teams to ever qualify for the college football playoff invitational. If you make the playoff, you don't get an equal share. In fact, you get half or you get three-quarters of that playoff payout. That's an interesting model that I have seen floated that would reward a team like Oregon or Washington or Utah, presumably somebody who could get to the conference uh, championship and then have access to the playoff. If you make the playoff, you don't just have to share that with 11 other conference members, or in this case, nine other conference members. You get 50% of that payout or, or some larger share. Another uh, scenario I have seen floated is just that the teams that appear in uh, more primetime games uh, that don't end up on ESPN Plus should get additional revenue. Or uh, Oregon or Washington should get a share and a half, and the others have to, you know, take a uh, a smaller subsidy from the uh, revenue generated from the media rights deal. Where do you guys fall on that spectrum? Should the Pac-12 conference be interested in uh, cutting in and wheeling and dealing, so to speak, with the members like Oregon and Washington? I'm going to use them, but I do think I do think that Arizona State in the Phoenix TV market. And I think Utah and I think, uh, to some extent, Stanford and Cal in the Bay Area could also argue that they bring a larger television footprint. How do we solve that, guys? Yeah, I think it's a good call. Uh, if you're the Pac-12 and 
as we've talked about, it seems like the Pac-12 has more negotiating tools than the Big 12, but if you want to keep this conference together, you got to keep Oregon and Washington. If they leave for some reason or they want to travel to some other conference, that's when the Pac-12 is going to crumble. So you got to incentivize them to stay. And we talked about this you know, before, the whole you know transfer portal. And I joked about Oregon entered the transfer portal. Make an offer that Oregon's going to like and want to stay here in the Pac-12 to keep this conference together. So I think those type of incentive things are going to be good for the conference, and it's going to create uh, you know hated teams as well. You know, USC was always kind of that hated team by a lot of the Pac-12 conference. If Oregon or Washington is getting more money, it's just going to make those fans that are opponent, opponents of them even more mad and want to just root against those guys. Yeah, I think the equal payout exists for a reason right now. I mean, obviously, like, it's not very fair for your Oregon states and your Washington states if, uh, it, you know, if, if Oregon and Washington are getting most of the pie. So I think your idea or, you know, whoever's idea that was that you floated out there of the bonuses, you know, like, so, you know, it's it's an equal share. But if Oregon plays on ESPN or, um, you know, ABC, whatever the case may be, then then they get a little bit of a bonus for that. And then also you have performance-based bonuses as well, like making a Final Four um, or if we're talking about football, making a college football playoff. So I, I agree with Steven. I agree with you. I think that's a good call. Yeah, I think that we're in a new era where you start to have to, you know, you're going to have to think creatively. You have to try to keep your restless members happy. On one hand, there's nowhere for Oregon or Washington to go right now. It's not like they're leaving for the Big Ten. It's not like they've been invited to the SEC. They may never get that invitation. So I would be reluctant to just go, hey, you know what, in perpetuity, we're going to give you a larger share of the base revenue. Like I don't think that's going to fly with eight other conference members who are going to go, hey, wait a minute, why are we sticking around to take less? And, in fact, it may have Arizona State, Arizona, Colorado, and Utah – uh, more interested in talking to the Big 12. So I don't think you have a model where you go, hey, they're just going to get a share and a half or they're going to get 1.3 and everybody else is going to have to share what's left over. So, uh, you know, in res- with respect to that, I think the, the model that works and the model that is just and fair is a model that says, look, if your teams make the NCAA tournament, instead of sharing that revenue equally as we have over time, no, no, you'll get 50%, and then the rest of the conference gets to share the rest of that. Or in the case of the college football playoff or bowl games that have payouts, you will get 50%. Anybody who makes a bowl game will get 50% of the revenue that is uh, generated as a payout to the conference, and the rest of the conference has to split it. Because in that sense, if I'm Oregon or Washington, it feels very fair to me. And let's be real. Oregon has elevated in this cycle in this last decade Oregon is elevated while the conference revenues have suffered and I don't think it's lost on anybody that it makes sense because you've got Phil Knight and Penny Knight the ultimate equalizers they have been you know supporting Oregon in a way and funding Oregon in a way that others have not been funded so Oregon is risen in this era so if I'm Phil Knight Penny Knight and I've you know funneled all this money into the University of Oregon athletic department I don't want to see Oregon, if it makes a playoff, have to share that, you know, nine other ways. Like that, it just doesn't feel that that like that's just or equitable, especially in today's world of college football, where everybody is being told invest in football, invest in football. George Klyovkov said it, you know, on his initial tour after he was named conference commissioner. He said, "Hey." We have to make a bigger investment in football. So why should Colorado or Oregon State or Washington State or Arizona 
get to have an equal share of the college football playoff payout that you know Utah or Washington or Oregon get. It just shouldn't be that way. I'll take your phone calls on the subject, plus we'll talk about recruiting. A recruit has weighed in. A big-time recruit picked USC and cited USC's move to the Big Ten as a reason for that decision. We'll talk about that coming up, and I'll take your phone calls. 503-417-7575. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. College football playoff revenue. Equal sharing. TV revenue. Equal sharing. What should the Pac-12 members do? What do you do if you're Oregon? What do you do if you're Washington? Do you want a larger slice of the pie? Of course you do. But at what cost? Let's go to the phone lines. Any questions? 503-417-7575. Jonathan is in Eugene listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Go ahead, Jonathan. Mr. John Canzano, love your show, bro. First Thank off, you. I'm going to tell you something right now. I love what you do, and I love your passion for sport and uh, trying to figure all this kind of stuff out. But I'm going to tell you something right now. Oregon, uh, it, it, here's the thing about Oregon. Uh, they're kind of a brand of their own, almost, <laughs> if you think about it. I mean, uh, if you think about all the stuff that Phil Knight and uh, what he's done for the organization and the whole bit, I mean, it's, uh, they, they're standalone. And, and uh, I'm wondering if USC, UCLA, did they, are they just running because they can't recruit in that area anymore and Oregon's getting all the good players and Oregon's just rolling people? Because if you think about it, and I'm, and I'm not saying that they win all the games all the time, but, I mean, for a lot of the times, though, you think about it. Oregon has beaten Wisconsin. They've been, they've, they've been down to SEC country, and they rolled Tennessee. I mean, that was almost an embarrassment um, for them. And, 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 and then Ohio State last year and all that kind of stuff, and then Michigan a couple of times. I mean, so my, my, my whole thing is, is, does Oregon have to really do anything? Or do they just stay pat? I mean, what do they do? Yeah, if you're, the, the reason that USC and UCLA are leaving the Pac-12, it's not because they've dominated. They haven't in the last decade. It's because they're in the Los Angeles TV market. They have 5.2 million television households available to them. That's why the Big Ten was interested in them. And the Big Ten, let's face it, was mostly interested in USC. UCLA's along for the ride. But I think UCLA is going to get their teeth kicked in in the Big Ten Conference, but they're going to be happy to do it because they're going to be making 80, 75, 80, 85 million dollars a year in media rights revenue. And the Pac-12 members are probably looking at something, if we're going to be ambitious, something that pushes towards 35 to 40 million a year if they give up all of their games to ESPN and ESPN Plus. So it is a money equation. Oregon has a great brand. Oregon has had more success than USC and UCLA in recent years, but Oregon is sitting in a television footprint that has about a million households. That's it, and that doesn't move the needle. Roy's in Portland. Roy, what's on your mind? Yeah, I got a couple things on my mind, but I just want to put some things in perspective, John, when it Do comes it. to Oregon. Do it. You know, growing up in the South, when, we, when I thought about Pacific Northwest football, it was Washington. <laughs> That's what we thought about. Yes. We thought about – I'm just going to be honest with you. It was University of Washington. 
growing up in the in the in the in the eighties and nineties, when you thought about Pacific Northwest football, living in anywhere else in the country but the Pacific Northwest, it was University of Washington. That's what it was. With all those teams, with the Steve Edmonds, with winning the national championship. I'm talking about somebody from the outside looking in. It wasn't Oregon. It was University of Washington. That's from people from outside of Pacific Northwest thought about Pacific Northwest football. We weren't thinking about Washington State. We weren't thinking about <laughs> we wasn't thinking about Oregon State or Oregon. It was Washington. Right. So Oregon, yeah, you had a good one. You have recently from like two thousand on. But to say like, oh, we dominating USC when people think the Pac-10 overall, they think USC. When they think Pacific Northwest football, they think Washington. I mean, I'm not trying to rain on y'all parade, but from, yes, from 2000, from Chip Kelly's run, you know, a little bit of Bellatier, but from Chip Kelly, Helfrich, that's when really, from 2000 on, that's when, you know, you I think Oregon really got on the map. But when you, when you talk about the 90s and the 80s, I mean, 20, 30 years, the 70s, it was Washington when you did, when you talked about Pacific Northwest football. Everybody knew what Seattle was. Everybody knew those purple colors. People in the Midwest, people in the South, it was all about Washington. Now, as far as the revenue, you cannot have you, – you have to have equal. You cannot give one team more than the other team, John. That's not going to – you're going to have teams resenting each other. You can't do that. Everybody's got to share equally. It's not going. It, it can't be somebody went here, so we're going to give more money to that. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. You want to talk about resentment by teams? They may not say nothing, but they're not going to just sit there and let. Uh, I'm, you can say that about Vanderbilt. What is Vanderbilt doing in the SEC? Not not nothing, but they get they get an equal share because they're a founding member. You can't have founding members of the Pac-12 get less money than other founding members. Would you That's do it fair. would you do it in a college football playoff scenario? And one thing that one dirty little secret about the Pac-12 is that the teams that appeared on ABC more often than others did get a little bit more. There was some kicker that would kick in if USC or Oregon or Washington or Stanford appeared on on ABC, they would get a little bonus money. It wasn't a lot, but it was something that was seen as an incentive. But Roy, could you give uh, let's just say Oregon makes the playoff two years from now under Dan Lanning. Uh, would you uh, be okay if you were a Pac-12 member going, look, we're going to share the media rights equally, but if you make the playoff, you don't have to share it? I don't think that's fair, John. I think you got to share because that's what USC was complaining about. They said that they bought more fans and more eyes, so they should have got more revenue. That's why they claimed yep. they were. Right. So I, I, I don't think you should share – I think the Pac-12 needs to go get San Diego State. They need to just win. Just concentrate on. All right, we we got to get to the break. I want to finish that after the break. We'll talk about recruiting and we'll talk about San Diego State and maybe UNLV. Leave it here. BFFT from the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights. Here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. So we've been waiting and wondering about recruits, and I still want your phone calls on the Pac-12 college football playoff, Oregon's predicament in the Pac-12, 503-417-7575 is the number. A couple lines still open. I'll take more calls this segment. But we've been waiting and watching 
for the recruits to weigh in when it comes to realignment. And I saw a story this morning from Andrew Nemec, who now writes for scorebooklive.com, covers recruiting. One of the best in the country. He wrote about an Under Armour All-American who came from Kennedy Catholic High School in Washington, offensive lineman Micah Banuelos, who was likely to choose Oregon. Seemed to be leaning Oregon. He was filmed wearing Oregon gloves at the Northwest Showcase in June. Is that a thing? But he uh, it proved not to be the case today as Banuelos announced that he is going to USC, made a commitment to USC. And the reason that he cited in Nemec's piece, he said, quote, SC is the move. The Big Ten is different. For SC to come out of nowhere and join the Big Ten, it shows they have a lot in store for the program. He was asked if he would have chosen Oregon if the Ducks were invited to the Super Conference, and he said it would have been more of a challenge, but SC did it so fast, Oregon didn't have a chance, according to all the people I talked to, many of the coaches. Who knows? Things might change. But right now, I know where I want to go, end quote. Banuelos uh, is picking USC. It's a big get for Lincoln Riley, number 13 uh, rated interior offensive lineman in the country. He is going to uh, enroll early at USC. And uh, you've got... You know, a star, a five-star quarterback and a five-star wide receiver. We all expect Lincoln Riley to get those positions, but now you get a offensive lineman who is a big-time player picking USC and citing the Big Ten Conference as a reason for that. So there it is. There it is, the first recruit, I think, that I have heard of that chose USC uh, and cited the Big Ten as a reason why, but uh, keep an eye on that. We'll continue to track that stuff. I just think it's interesting. From a alignment or realignment or expansion perspective, Roy in the last segment, I'm sorry I had to cut you off, Roy, but we got to get to commercial break. And uh, I, it, it, Roy was starting to go down the path of talking about adding San Diego State, which I think is a more likely potential expansion target than any of the Big 12 schools that have been talked about. We've talked about Baylor. We've talked about Houston. We've talked about Texas Tech. We've looked at Oklahoma State. We've even looked at Kansas from a men's basketball perspective. And now, as I think more about it, and I thought a lot about it in the last week, got a little bit away from it, but not really, as we think more about it, um, I do think San Diego State is going to be interesting to the Pac-12. More importantly, it's going to be interesting to ESPN. Because the Pac-12 is losing the Los Angeles TV market by virtue of USC and UCLA leaving. So if you are the Pac-12 or Pac-10 or whatever you want to call it, adding back 1.1 million households in Southern California, which are in San Diego County, uh, gives you at least a piece of that market back. And then the second school that you might look at, because you've got to take them in twos for competitive balance, is somebody like UNLV. And I normally wouldn't consider UNLV, but I sort of like the pairing of San Diego and Las Vegas as a replacement for the two Los Angeles schools that are, are leaving. And I like the proximity to George Klyovkov's hometown, Vegas, 
the uh, Allegiant Stadium connection. That's where UNLV plays. That's where the Pac-12 would presumably continue to play its conference championship game or whatever it's going to play at the end of the season. Uh, if there is a partnership with the ACC, it could be a crossover game with the ACC that is played in Vegas. But I see some synergy there that is interesting to me suddenly. Like Boise State is a, a, a better program with more history. But Boise State happens to be located in Idaho where there are 517,000 households. So you don't have enough television sets in Boise to justify taking Boise State. Now, they could be a throw-in if you're taking San Diego State. Maybe you look at Boise State. But I think the market of Las Vegas as an emerging sports market, and I said it off the top of the show, sports capital of the world, maybe it was L.A. at one time, could end up being Vegas given all the energy, all the growth, Major League Baseball, the NBA, hockey, Vegas as a championship caliber destination sports town becomes kind of interesting to me if I'm the Pac-12 conference and I'm looking to grow a little bit. So I would look at San Diego State because it helps win back about a million of those 5.2 million households that were lost when USC and UCLA went away. And I would look at Vegas because of the growth there and uh, the increasing number of television sets. It's larger than Idaho. It has a television footprint that is very comparable to Oregon's footprint of about 1.1 million households. So all of a sudden, you've eliminated 5 million households in L.A., but you've gathered back about 2.2 million households, and you've added Vegas and San Diego into the footprint. Now, I don't think the Pac-12 has to expand, but if I'm ESPN, I like Pacific time zone and I like mountain time zone games because they're going to be unopposed by the uh, Big Ten's offerings and unopposed by the SEC offerings. So I think if I am the Pac-12, Pac-10, whatever you want to call it, yeah, I would be in, interested in engaging in that kind of conversation. But if I'm ESPN, I am pushing for that kind of conversation. Let's take some phone calls. 503-417-7575 is the number. Let's go out to Vancouver. Vancouver, Washington. Joel calling in from Vancouver. Joel, welcome to the show. Appreciate you. Thanks, John. Uh, first, I just want to say uh, the previous caller talking about what he thought was uh, the Pac-12 was uh, Seattle. That's that, that, that's far. That's a that's a boomer com comment for sure. Uh, <laughs> Oregon's been dominant for this uh, at least 20 years in, in the Pac-12. Uh, so yeah, uh, the Don James era really doesn't move the needle as far as uh, who the big dogs are in the Pac-12. Let's give Oregon um, credit. Let's give Oregon credit for like. 12 years. We'll go back into like Chip Kelly before he made the yeah. BCS title game. Let's say Oregon in the last 12 years has emerged as the best brand in the conference. And and I think Roy I think Roy was uh was being a little inflammatory, kind of, you know, he was uh, he was throwing a little salt on the uh, Oregon fan base, but yeah, go ahead Joel, finish up. Yeah, thank you. Uh so my question is uh I I've, I've seen a couple articles and I think you've hinted at it this past week. Uh, what kind of cards does uh, Governor Newsom hold is, in far as uh, um, kind of holding UCLA's feet to the fire? Uh, um, do they? Is there any? It's a long shot for sure. Uh, but um, would they be kind of be forced to, with their tail between their legs, to have to uh, not make the move? And in which case, if that if that dream scenario happens. Uh, does USC kind of sour on the deal if they're the one that the only 
school that would have to make the, the trip to the Midwest, the East Coast. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think I think the governor in California is mostly grandstanding, right? I don't, I th- I don't think he's ultimately going to be able to stand in UCLA's way. But I do think there's a potential lawsuit from the bondholders who hold the UC system bonds. They've taken a hit. Maybe their creditworthiness isn't what it once was after the defection of UCLA. Also, I think that there could be some penalty for UCLA and that they may have to subsidize Cal and some others uh, a little bit. And so maybe they're not going to get the whole 75 to $80 million a year in revenue. Maybe they're going to have to give up 5 or $7 million a year. Who knows? So, uh, But I think there's a third scenario that is still out there that I raised, uh, and I raised it in a column I wrote like three days ago at johnconzano.com. So forgive me if you are subscribed already and you're getting it every morning in your email inbox you already know this. And if you're not subscribed, get over there and grab a free subscription or a paid subscription, whatever works for you, and you'll get it every day. But I raise the possibility that maybe if you're George Klyovkov and you're ESPN, maybe the play, and it's a Hail Mary of a play, but maybe the play right now isn't necessarily to move on all the way. Maybe... You're looking to ESPN here, and you're going, look, there's another option here. Uh, aside from bailing us out, taking all our content, putting on an ESPN Plus, where they've raised rates in the last month, maybe there's an opportunity for the Pac-12 and ESPN to go back to UCLA and go back to USC and go, hold up. What if we can get you $75 million a year in annual media rights revenue? What if we can match what the Big Ten Conference is doing? Now, it may not be enough to have UCLA stop and backtrack or whatnot, but is it possible, given what we've seen on the landscape right now, Notre Dame talking about $75 million a year, the Big Ten doing what it did with Fox, is it possible that this isn't a done deal yet? I just I raised that question. I had some insiders. you know, I asked US, UCLA and USC that very question. Have you moved on? Is it a done deal? They said at this point everybody's moved on. But I kind of wonder if, you know, this isn't a deal that's going to take place until 2024. Like before 2024, between now and then, is it possible that ESPN could come out of left field in a equalizing move and tell the members that are bolting, hey, don't bolt right now. We're going to get you $75 million. Now, it may not stop them. Like, USC may still go, you know what, we're going to go to the Big Ten because we have access to the playoff, and it's a bigger deal to us. UCLA may say, no, we're going to the Big Ten because USC's going. Like, it may not stop you. But if you're George Klyovkov, isn't that something that you need to ask? Isn't that a question that needs to be asked? Now, I'm going to ask him at Media Day on Friday. I'm going to ask him, is that on the table? I'll see what Klyovkov says on Friday, and you'll hear it on this show. Let's go to Steve, who's in Aloha. That opens a line, by the way, at 503-417-7575. Steve in Aloha wants to give us a UCLA perspective. You went to school there. Yes, sir, I sure did. It was a long time ago, but that's okay, John. I'm, you know, uh, anyway, I, the reason for the call was, you know, I, I listen to you all the time and, and listen to the Oregon fans. And, listen, I have a lot of my buddies that are Oregon fans, and, you know, we always go back and forth. But, but you know, and I realize it's all about TV rights and about football, right? Well, 
you, you and others have said, well, you still are going to get their teeth kicked in. Well, first of all, we're 39-33 and 33 against the Big Ten in football. We'll dominate in all other sports because we're the second school behind Stanford with the most NCAA tournament. And granted, nobody cares other than football and basketball. But I think the biggest issue here, too, John, is prestige, right? Right. UCLA gets 150,000 freshman applications every year. We're the number one rated public school in the country. You look at Oregon, and where are they? You know, I mean, 35th, 40th. People in New York aren't going, I'm gonna, I want to send my application to Oregon so I, I can go in there. No, they don't. UCLA gets applications from all over the world because people want to go to the number one public school. So the Big Ten is not only getting the, the, the great sports program that UCLA is, but they're getting the number one public school in the country, and that's prestige. And, and, and so there's a lot more, that I think, that goes into this whole thing than just picking a school because they're great in football. Uh, and the only reason Oregon's great in football, and let's be honest here, John, is because of Phil Knight. If Phil Knight's not around, you don't have the millions of dollars to, to spend on toys, which all these 18-year-old kids love, and that's the reason why they get these recruits. I mean, who wants to come to Eugene? Uh, I mean, I mean it, it just doesn't fit into most. Most people are going, where's Eugene? Uh, who, who the heck lives in Eugene? So, anyway, that's just my perspective. Uh, I, I, I love the Pac-12. I wish we were staying. Maybe we still will. Maybe Stanford will go to uh, the, the, the Big 12 if, if the governor makes a big enough deal and, and, and you know, charges us enough um, money that it does not worth it. And Stanford goes to the Big 12 instead, and we stay in the Pac-12. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that, too. But uh, in either case, I just want everybody to know out yeah. there in Oregon that, you know, the Bruins, the Bruins will be fine in the, Pac-12, in the Big 10. I'm not, I'm not worried about those. They'll, they'll be just fine. I think there'll be more of a basketball power in the Big Ten than a football power. I can't, con- I can't conceive of UCLA winning 9, 10, 11 games a year in the Big Ten. I could see UCLA if it stayed in the Pac-12 and Chip Kelly, who I think is building on a nice season a year ago, I think Chip Kelly has a chance to win eight or nine games this year. Like He has a very decent team, but I don't think he's going to do that playing against – Ohio State, Michigan, uh, Michigan State, Purdue. Like, I, di- I don't see that happening in the Big Ten Conference. And for those other sports, I think it's great that UCLA's been competitive. And, and granted, they're not going to the Big Ten in every sport. But I think the sports that are going to have to travel out there are going to suffer a little bit. And I think they're going to justify that suffering by going, look, uh, you're getting a whole bunch of revenue. You're getting a whole bunch of uh, facility improvements. You're going to have better coaching. I think we all know why UCLA wants to go to the Big Ten. It's money. It's not geography. It's not tradition. It's money. It's access to the playoff, and it's money. That's it. And and the caller's right. If you put UCLA in Woodburn, it's not going to be UCLA. And that's why the Big Ten Conference was interested in UCLA, because it wasn't in Woodburn. It was in Los Angeles, where you have 5 million television homes. So it really is about TV market at this point. Let's go to Mike in Centralia, Washington. Mike, weigh in. Go ahead. Hey, John. How you doing? Love the show. Thank you. Hey, I'm with you on the UNLV and the San Diego. Um, I also think you pull Nevada in, because you can still get that – uh, Vegas market from, uh, you know, Nevada games are showed down there. And then uh, what's your thought on, like, Fresno State? Um, I think, you know, you get some of the San Francisco market out of that area. San Jose State and Boise, they're going to have to suffer. And I hate to see Boise get left out because they got a great program. But um, 
like you're saying, it's all about the markets. All you Oregon fans getting butt hurt about not being called in. It's all about the market. It's all about the TV market, and you got to remember that as we keep on going on. And uh, if I recall to all you other Oregon fans whining about what a great program you have, I believe Washington was the only team that made it to the playoff since we started. I'll take your comments off the air. Yeah, Oregon made it to the playoff and, and won a playoff game, got to the title game in 2015 under Mark Helfrich where they played Ohio State and lost. Washington made the playoff two years later and lost to Alabama. So those are the only two appearances by Pac-12 teams. I think the Oregon fans know. I think the Oregon fans know why they weren't invited. It's not because of the, uh, it's not because of the brand. It's not because of, uh, you know, the lack of success. There's been some success within the conference. It's the TV market. It's 1.1 million households. Now, he raised some, uh, some questions about some other potential schools. You're not interested in San Jose State if you are the Pac-12 for a couple of reasons. One of them is academically it doesn't fit with sort of the research institutions within the Pac-12. Second one is you already have the San Francisco Oakland San Jose TV market from Stanford and Cal being part of your conference. Same goes for Nevada. If I'm taking uh, UNLV, I'm not interested in Nevada because I'm getting Las Vegas. And by the way, Las Vegas is pushing towards a million TV households, but I think Las Vegas has got incredible growth in front of it. I could see Las Vegas, which is currently sitting just inside the top 40 markets, I could see Vegas pushing towards being a top 20 market. A decade from now. So if you're very forward thinking in the Pac-12 and you're going, look, could the Vegas market add, uh, you know, 200, 300,000 households in the next decade that are TV households, I wouldn't bet against Vegas. Uh, but I like San Diego State because you grab uh, part of that Southern California market and you stay in the Pacific time zone. And I like Las Vegas because it adds a little bit of luster uh, and it ends up uh, making you more attractive. And frankly, if uh, you're George Klyovkov, there may be some connections right there in Vegas that, that help facilitate that. Hey, John, I got a question for you about Vegas also. Is there a chance that if the Pac-12 really took in UNLV and brings in Vegas, like that's what they're known for, right? Like that's the hub of the Pac-12. Could they get even more uh, money by having teams come out and play a non-conference game mm. in Vegas, right? Because that's yeah. where the Pac-12 tournament is. That's where the Pac-12 football uh, championship game is. You, know, you could get a big-time school to come and play a Pac-12 school in Vegas. Yeah, and they're playing their home games in that NFL stadium. So I think I think what's really on the table here is the loose partnership with the ACC. We haven't talked about it on today's show, but we talked a lot about it two weeks ago. But that loose partnership with the ACC is super interesting to me because if you're the Pac-12, or more importantly, you're ESPN, you have the ability to bring out Miami, Clemson, uh, you know, possibly bring out uh, a Florida State and play a couple of preseason games, early season games, non-conference. They'd be conference crossover games. And you get a chance to pit Oregon and Utah and Washington against Florida State and Clemson and and uh, presumably Miami. You get Mario Cristobal against Stan Lanning in Vegas. So, yeah, I think that's on the table. And I also think a you know, that normal weekend, that dis first week of December, usually it's December 4th, December 6th, they play the Pac-12 championship game in Las Vegas. I think you have a real opportunity there to play uh, some crossover ACC Pac-12 games that would be really interesting to me. And and I think, you know, instead of playing a conference championship game, you just you declare, hey, the first place team is your conference champion, and oh, by the way, 
they're going to play the first place team from the ACC, and the second place is going to play second, and the third's going to play third, and all those games are going to happen on the same weekend in Vegas, Friday, Saturday, right in front of the college football playoffs selection committee Sunday, so they get a chance to see Clemson, and they get a chance to see Oregon, and they get a chance to see Utah and Washington and Florida State one last time before they make their decision. I think that has the potential of your ESPN to be a huge television audience. Well, and you talk about the growing market of Vegas. I mean, the Raiders just posted the highest ticket revenue for the NFL last season, and it was their first season in Vegas. So it could work in the NFL, and it seems to be like it could work in college football as well. I looked at that NFL data, too, and I looked closely at it because I feel like that's really what college football is missing. The top two teams when it came to ticket revenue in the NFL were Vegas and the San Francisco 49ers. All right, Then you look at the top ten, you start going, well, it's New England and some other places. But you had geographic parity. It was like it wasn't isolated to all of the south and all of the eastern part of the United States when it came to who's making it in the NFL. College football's got to be mindful of that. Television has to be mindful of that. Look, we all care about the Pac-12 because we happen to be in the Pacific time zone out here at least. But I think college football should care about the Pac-12 surviving this because if it doesn't, you're left with nothing west of Texas, and that could be a big problem. Coming up, Punch It Audio, the best sound from all around. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I had a friend of mine ask me, what's the biggest story going on right now? You know, is it Kevin Durant? Where's he going to end up? Do you really care? Does anybody care? If Kevin Durant isn't going to Portland, do you care where he ends up? Uh, No, it's college football realignment. It's what happens to the Pac-12 in the next few months or even few days or few weeks. All of that is important and interesting. I've been writing all about it at johnconzano.com. I hope you're enjoying it. I'm having a blast writing there but i just want people to know like you know this show goes where it needs to go like sometimes it goes off the rails no lie well, you know that if you're a long time listener but it goes where it needs to go and right now i think we're talking about what's important and what you care about and what i care about and it's the health and the future and the longevity of the pac-12 conference and frankly i'm a little more than frustrated with the college football playoff invitational and the apparent drive by the SEC and the Big Ten to monopolize the damn thing. It's clear that access to the playoff is what they're after, right? It's TV dollars and access to the playoff. They're chasing the money. They're chasing new revenue streams. Why? Because they're probably fearful that uh, their expenses have risen and name image likeness and coaching salaries and facilities and oh we got to keep pace we got to have more than we had last year and so they're all looking for new revenue streams they're all chasing it and it makes me sad because the western part of the united states the pacific time zone deserves to have a voice in the playoff and for people who say hey the best football is played in the sec or the big ten like most years i might agree with you you know like it those teams My eyes tell me those teams are better. They're more physical. But I would caution you to just give the trophy from, you know, caution you about giving the trophy to the SEC of the Big Ten every year because 
let's look back in Major League Baseball. You know, what was the Atlanta Braves with 88 wins won the World Series? The Buccaneers two years ago, they were the five seed in the NFC. They won the Super Bowl. I think you got to play it out. I think your conference champions need to be involved in a playoff if you come from a major conference. And I think the Pac-12 is a major conference. So it's frustrating to me to see television and those greedy bastards in the SEC and the Big Ten. Yeah, I said it. Uh, I, the, just chasing the money and trying to monopolize the playoff. It ain't right. And I know ain't ain't a word. Mark's in Portland. Mark, welcome to the conversation. Go ahead. Hey, how you doing? I'm well. Uh, I just, first of all, uh, <clears throat> the Washington fan that, uh, the duck hater that called in, <laughs> these guys are delusional. I mean, Oregon is, heads up, owns every team in the conference in football since 1994. They've won, since 2001, they've won seven outright conference championships. And when he was talking about the playoffs, uh, Oregon went to a playoff in 2014. Not only did they win, they won in historic fashion. They scored... 59 points, which is a Rose Bowl record, and had 640 yards. Heads up, in the Pac-12, I'll listen to the SEC. i got to listen to Roy, because right now, you know, they're kicking our butt. But uh, anybody in the Pac-12, you are Oregon owns you in football. It's it's just a fact. And, you know, to just listen to these guys call in and, and uh, rag on Oregon, I think people are upset with the fact that it's a monopoly. And, it, you know, this system's not going to hurt Oregon as much as it's going to hurt Oregon State, Washington State. It, it just seems like whoever has the money is going to get the best football players and basketball players. And, you know, at the college level, it just doesn't feel right to me. There's yeah. just a lot of corruption because of all the greed and the power. I mean, why should we just have one side of the country dominate everything um, when, when this should be more of an equal opportunity for, you know, Oregon State, should have as good a chance as Oregon right now, and they really don't because of the money. And and so I could I could see it why people uh, frown on Oregon a little bit because they got Phil Knight, and you know they're pro- this situation is probably not going to hurt them as much as the other the bottom half of the the Pac-12. It's going to be even way more difficult to pop through and try to yeah. get you know to the postseason. Yeah, I would even argue like, look, uh, you know, the reason that Oklahoma State has risen in the Big Twelve, it's T Boone Pickens. Oregon's rise in the Pac-12, it's Phil Knight. It, uh, you look at who has, who has, you know, sort of elevated in the last decade in the Pac-12 conference. It's really an interesting study. It's almost like we should write a book about this. Like, Oregon is elevated. As revenues are down, Oregon's up. Hmm, why? Well, because they have the great equalizer, Phil Knight. He can subsidize and help close that gap and that shortfall. And, when you are competing in the Pac-12 conference against others that cannot do that, that's a huge advantage. So who else has risen in the last decade in the Pac-12? Well, Utah has. Why? Take a look at that. Well, Utah also has some unique advantages. They have a fan base, one of the few fan bases in the country that has expanded their home stadium. While attendance is falling in the SEC, they were down 100,000 fans before the pandemic hit. Uh, the Big Ten Conference had its lowest attendance in 25 seasons before the pandemic hit. The Pac-12 was down, had uh, a huge uh, percentage decrease right before the pandemic. Attendance was down everywhere except in Salt Lake City, where Utah 
And Mark Harlan, the AD at Utah, came on the show and talked about, hey, we have a wait list of 5,000 seats. We need, to, uh, we need to create some seats. So they expanded Rice-Eccles Stadium, and Utah uh, benefited from that. I think Utah was able to fund their program better because, hey, that's an extra five or six or 7,000. You know, look at their attendance. They had uh, huge revenue from tickets sold. Utah seemed to be immune while others were being punished. Uh, who else has risen? Uh, how about Washington? They've got a nice fundraising arm. The gift giving at Washington and the Taiyi Club, uh, that's solid, right? Washington has done a nice job. You could even argue that Washington State rose up somehow in the last decade. They went from not mattering at all to kind of mattering for a spell. Well, who was it? It was Mike Leach, who, by virtue of the fact that he was the play caller and the head coach, was a little bit of an outlier. You know, he was a he was a little bit of a wild card because you didn't have to pay a million dollar coordinator. You didn't have to pay six million dollars for your head coach. You got both with Mike Leach and you got him at a discount because you were in Pullman. Also, Washington State went all in with facilities. They took on tremendous debt. So you look at the last decade of the Pac twelve, it wasn't USC, it wasn't UCLA in that LA TV market. Frankly it was Oregon. It was Utah, it was Washington, and to some extent it was Washington State. And it's all easily explained. Mark is in Kentucky calling in on the college football front. Welcome. Hey, John. How are you? I'm doing well. So, y'all need to remember uh, Oregon's been in the playoffs twice. Yep. Auburn, Auburn, where Michael Dreyer was down, and Ohio State. Yes. Well, so, that was a BC Michael Dyer game was a BCS game. It was the last BCS game, but they've been in the title game the twice. Okay, they've been in the title game twice. All right, yes, but everybody keeps remembering just the one. So yeah, um, the word on the street around here is the Pac-12 is a joke, and they can't beat Vanderbilt. So that's why they're not talking to the SEC. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know what what y'all got to do to bring up Oregon, but something has to happen. Maybe beat Georgia. Yeah, I mean they beat Ohio State last year. It didn't matter. You know, it it really yeah. does come back to television markets. If Oregon were located in Southern California, Oregon would have been right alongside USC or right alongside UCLA. The Big Ten would have taken probably Oregon over one of those and probably over UCLA. And said, "Welcome to the Big Ten. It's that it's geography that's keeping Oregon out of the Big Ten. The Pac-12's got a problem, though, with image. It's got a narrative problem. Uh, it has been ongoing. Look, I, I I started writing about this stuff six, seven years ago. It's all coming to fruition now. You know that. If you're a longtime listener to the show, I was talking about the conference being underfunded relative to peers in 2016. I was writing about Larry Scott needing to go in 2016." It, now we are seeing the fruits of those problems manifesting themselves. And, you know, it, it ain't a great harvest by the Pac-12. You are underfunded by as much as 10 to $20 million a year per university. Over a decade, it's 100 to $200 million that you don't have to invest in football and in basketball. It's no surprise that, you know, Vanderbilt's got that money and Oregon doesn't. So Oregon's got Phil Knight. And I'm sure Phil Knight can pour a billion dollars into Oregon, as you know, as he has. They put billions into that campus, 
and Phil Knight can leave a large endowment to ensure that Oregon continues to thrive and not, you know, they won't have to, they won't have to be, uh, you know, a have-not in the college football landscape. But the Pac-12, what the Pac-12 needs to do to matter is the Pac-12 needs to get into the playoff. So reverse engineer that. How do you get into the playoff? How do you maintain access to the playoff? It's got to start with a television contract from ESPN that keeps the SEC and the Big Ten within view of the front windshield. You got to be able to see them. You know, I was driving to the freeway. I was driving on the freeway yesterday. I was going to the airport. I was dropping off family members who were flying out of town, and my uh, college-age daughter was following me. And I kept getting frustrated. And anybody who's got a teenager, you know, you're on the freeway. You say, hey, stay close to me. Then you look in the rearview mirror. She's two cars back, three cars back, starting to lose sight. And you're going, we needed to stay together. I jump on the phone. I said, hey, what did I tell you when we left? I said, keep me in sight. I'm thinking the Pac-12 needs to make that phone call. Like, they need to be talking with ESPN going, look, if you want us to matter, Let's get creative. Let's get creative with the ACC partnership. Let's get creative with ESPN+. Plus. Hell, if it comes to it, let's get creative with Amazon or Apple TV in getting a media deal that keeps the SEC and the Big Ten within view of the windshield. Because I can tell you, uh, you know, it would be really nice to see the Pac-12 keep UCLA and USC, like, you know, in some miracle Hail Mary scenario that – you know, they backtrack and they say, oh, we changed our mind. We're coming back. Coming home. That would be awesome because I love tradition, I, you know, all that. But it feels like a pipe dream at this point. The second best thing would be for the Pac-12 conference to get into the playoff as it expands and find itself pitted against USC or pitted against UCLA and kick their teeth in. That is the second best thing that can happen. And it happens in every other sport. It happens in the NCAA tournament. We get... David and Goliath. We get, you know, an automatic qualifier from the Big Sky Conference making the NCAA tournament. Hell, like, you know, Kansas played Portland State in an NCAA tournament game a few years ago. Wasn't that long ago. Ken Bone was the coach. I was there. Like, why can't that happen in college football? Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, says, hey, you know, we just we want the best teams in the playoff. Well, what about just having the best teams geographically distributed in the playoffs so we can actually determine, you know, who is the champion without a doubt left. And I feel like that's what college football is really forgetting as it's chasing the revenue and the media rights deals. And, you know, we're talking about all the wrong things. What about the health of the game? Who's speaking on behalf of the health of the game anymore? Nobody. Radio show hosts and fans and newspaper columnists and, you know, I'm writing about it, and, you know, we're all talking about it, but the people who are in position to actually do something are simply chasing the money. You know, it's like an Aesop's fable. They're going to lop off the Pacific time zone and go, hey, this is college football anymore. No, that's not going to work. You're going to lose the entire western part of the United States if you're not careful. Punch it Audio's coming up, I promise. Best sound from all around. Leave it here. <laughs> Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I got a whole list of things that I want to talk about on today's show. So far, I've gotten like two of them done. You ever do that? You ever make a to-do list? And then you don't really get to the list, and at the end of the day, you're like, I don't know what I did today. Uh, this radio show, though, has been lively. A lot of phone calls. 
appreciate everybody who listens to this show, makes it part of their day. Uh, you know, this this audience that listens to this show, whether it's live or via podcast, is an absolute army, and I predict I appreciate that you're out there. Means a lot to me. I hear from a lot of you. You write me, you message me, you tell me in the grocery store or wherever you bump into me. Hey, listen to the show, and I appreciate that. So thank you for being out there. But I have a whole bunch of things I want to get to. But I one of them is Punch It Audio. So let's do it, Stephen. Let's play Punch It. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Well, let's stay on the realignment front. Dan Rubenstein talking about organ and realignment. Punch it. So I have sort of a romantic dream scenario that you can absolutely shoot down for whatever reason. So Oregon likes to tout itself as like our tradition is that we don't have tradition, right? That like innovation and doing things our way in a new way is right. the Oregon tradition, which I think it's is actually great. kind like, of Big 12. <laughs> Very Big 12 of, of them. Sort of Big 12 of them. They lose their coach every four years. That's just yep. the reality of being an Oregon fan. Uh, and usually it doesn't work out for those coaches uh, once they leave Oregon. But... My my perfect storm would be Oregon going like in a weird semi-independent, like to mm-hmm. bundle with three or four other teams and just make deals with various conferences and a la carte it to some sort of interesting. And you'd, you'd have to bundle with some big teams. You know, you so have to go to like this is Oregon over the top is what we're talking. It's about. OTC this is Oregon. Oregon is Hulu. Yes. Yeah. Essentially. And so Oregon goes to Notre Dame, Washington and Stanford or something like that big markets, big brands, and says, why don't we make deals with the Big 12, the ACC, and the Big 10? And why don't we go to Apple? Why don't we go to YouTube TV? Why don't we go to all of these places and ask for $15 million from each of them? Now, Notre Dame can go bigger than that, obviously. Right. Notre Dame maybe is going to you know, build its own side deals outside of side deals. But to me, as an Oregon fan, I want Oregon to beat up on West Coast teams. I want them to beat the brains out of USC every year and Washington out of every you know, I want I yeah. want that because it's familiar and it's what college football is to me as somebody from Southern California. So that would be my dream scenario in which Oregon could play a few West Coast teams and then play one year they play North Carolina and Clemson. Alright, I get it, Dan. I get it, but it doesn't work from a television revenue standpoint. It just doesn't pencil out. I don't see the TV networks lining up in force to have Oregon and 1.1 million televisions in the Portland and Eugene and Salem TV markets. It's not enough. Further, what if Oregon has a down year? All of a sudden, then, what are you negotiating at a discount? It just doesn't work uh, from a media rights standpoint. You need that media money counted on. You need access to the playoff. Notre Dame has access to the playoff. It's proven it can get there. It works for Notre Dame. I get why you would think that this is a romantic idea, but it kind of falls apart when you start talking to TV executives and asking why don't they go independent because they'd have a difficult time piecemealing together a schedule. They'd have a difficult time getting the networks interested in a number that makes sense. I don't think $15 million here, there, and elsewhere is on the table. I think the better solution for Oregon is to be part of a conference that can negotiate a better deal as a whole. 
Nick Saban at Alabama talking about competitive balance. He has been all over the NIL discussion. A little bit on this side, a little bit on that side. Here's Saban. Punch it. You know, the thing that I have, um, you know, sort of expressed, um, not concerns about, but um, there's got to be some uniformity and protocol of how name, image, and likeness is implemented. Uh, And I think there's probably a couple factors that are important in that. Uh, How does this impact um, competitive balance, you know, in college athletics? Um, And is there transparency to maintain fairness uh, across the board in terms of college athletics? And how do we protect the players? Because there's more and more people that are trying to get between, you know, the player and the money. The biggest concern is, you know, how does this impact and affect recruiting uh, because on the recruiting trail right now there's a lot of people using this as um, inducements to go to their school by making promises as to whether they may or may not be able to keep uh, in terms of look Nick Saban everything he says tells me Nick Saban's a little worried not about college football but uh, he's worried about Alabama staying where they are in college football. And I don't blame him for that. Uh, I think when NIL comes along or when people teams start to play fast and you're Nick Saban, you got to worry about what is happening. And I also think he's losing players to places he never lost players to before. I'm worried about the health of college football. I think Nick Saban is probably worried about the health of college football, but... He's probably focused on it from a Alabama standpoint or an SEC standpoint. I mean, I can't get get past that. Mark Jackson says he believes the Lakers can win an NBA title as soon as 2023. What is he talking about? Punch it. What is the ceiling for this team as as presently constructed? Healthy, they can win a championship. Okay. If they are healthy and they compete on the defensive end night in and night out. Now, they they can't think we're going to roll the ball out. And because we have three future Hall of Famers, we're going to outscore everybody and win. It doesn't happen that way. Mark Jackson saying what an L.A. TV market wants to hear there. I don't think the Lakers are a serious contender to win it all in 2023. I think they have to stay healthy. It's a huge question when you have an aging LeBron James. You've got an Anthony uh, Davis uh, who has been injury prone. And you got roster problems with the Lakers that need to be solved. But, yeah, anytime you got LeBron and AD, you got a shot. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. I think Mark Jackson preaching to the choir a little bit there. Leave it here. Coming up, we'll talk about the absurdity of NBA summer. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, the NBA summer in full swing and in full absurdity. Adrian Wojnarowski, friend of this show, by the way. Uh, he uh, had the latest on Kevin Durant, and this, uh, I think, fuels a news cycle, fuels ESPN's NBA coverage, fuels NBA.com and Twitter as well. 
but it's this kind of stuff that makes me shake my head. Listen, Boston is among, you know, several teams that have been in regular contact with Brooklyn, I'm told. And, you know, obviously, you know, if you are the Boston Celtics, you know, there's a couple factors here that make the Kevin Durant uh, talks interesting. Number one, let's stop right there. I just want to dissect this a little bit. Steven, Sean, can we kick this around? You guys up for this? Yeah, let's go for it. Let's kick around NBA summer like it's a kickball and we're playing in the cul-de-sac, okay? So here's, here's two things. This Durant thing is sexy. He's the sexiest possible, I'm talking in terms of NBA player, but we're, we're looking at it, Boston plus Durant. It, it moves the needle for TV. Why should we pay attention to this as serious? We probably shouldn't be because he's going to be linked to all the good teams. And so it just, it just, you're right, it creates news that isn't necessarily news. Like, who wouldn't be interested in Durant? I think all teams would be. But Boston, since they're interested, they can push it more on TV. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it's it's news because Kevin Durant is one of the best players in the NBA and we know in the NBA if you're if you're a single individual then you have and you have one of those individuals, like it, it's the most individual sport in the entire NBA and the entire sports landscape. So it's uh, it's kind of a big deal on that front. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Are you interested in this story? We'll talk about it after the break. I want you to line up at five oh three four one seven seventy five seventy five. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Well, I had a column on Sunday at johnconzano.com about what makes college football special. I'm going to talk about it this hour. What makes it special? I'll also give you the five at five coming up here in just a moment. Five biggest stories given to you on a platter in the 5 o'clock hour. But I want to finish our thoughts and our conversation as we were talking about Kevin Durant, Adrian Wojnarowski, ESPN, 24-7 news cycle. Where's Durant going to go? Here are his list of teams. Here's what the Celtics have offered. Forgive me, but I'm just, I'm more into the world championships in track and field than I am into this Kevin Durant sweepstakes. It feels like, as uh, I think Stephen pointed out, non-news news, because we all know everybody's going to be interested in Durant, and I feel that there is a, there is a, uh, I guess, habit that ESPN has of marrying Kevin Durant, which is a sexy possible trade story with large markets and large fan bases. Again, we're back to television households mattering. Listen to what Adrian Wojnarowski said at the beginning of his report on Kevin Durant and the Boston Celtics. Listen, Boston is among you know several teams that have been in regular contact with Brooklyn, I'm told. And you know, I- All right, let's stop right there. Several teams. Tell us the others. Woj, I get it. He's got a producer telling him, look, we got Durant. This is a New York City story. It's Brooklyn. It's Durant. NBA people all over the country are going to love this. How do we, uh, how do we uh, amplify this? How do we throw some jet fuel on the Kevin Durant story? How about Boston? Let's find out what they're offering. Because nobody in Sacramento 
is turning on the TV to hear about what the Kings are doing to try to get Kevin Durant or Portland or other places. So I get it. I get why it's Boston. Go ahead, Woach. Obviously, you know, if you are the Boston Celtics, you know, there's a couple factors here that make the Kevin Durant uh, talks interesting. Number one, you know, Boston potentially has the pieces to be competitive with anybody in the league uh, in a Kevin Durant trade. And obviously, they're a team that believes they're close, that Kevin Durant could put them over the top. All right, let's stop there. A, is it good for Durant's legacy to be, again, the piece that puts someone over the top instead of a tentpole? Uh, you know, here's a guy who's left a couple of places chasing championships. He got one in Golden State, but then he went to Brooklyn. It hasn't happened for him there. If he moves again and he goes to Boston, who made the NBA Finals, is the legacy or the narrative on Durant's career improved by that? I don't think it is. I also, uh, you know, I want to hear about these other teams, Woj. Obviously, they swept the Nets in their first-round playoff series last season and, of course, lost to the Golden State Warriors in the finals. Uh, but, again, you know, Jalen Brown potentially, uh, when you look at individual players that might be available to the Nets in the marketplace, he's at the very top, 25 years old, although there's only two years left on his contract. Of course, there's four years left on Durant's deal. And again, you know, uh, Boston's no closer right now than, than anybody else uh, for, for a potential uh, deal with the Nets. But Hold on, hold on. Did you just bury in the story that Boston is no closer than anyone else for a potential deal for Kevin Durant? And yet we're talking all about Boston. Guys, what's happening here? Well, I think we're lucky that the Lakers can't really get him because they have no assets <laughs> because they would be talked about literally every second of the day on ESPN. Oh, give him time. Yeah, uh, again, I was I was speaking gibberish up uh, against the break. Uh, but yes. just uh, <laughs> uh, I think that, you know, Durant is it's a big story like Durant You're doing was, so much better right now. <laughs> thank you. Go, yeah, it's stressful go. being up against the break. Yeah, uh, Durant, you know, is uh, obviously he matters, right? Like he uh, him requesting a trade, I think, is is a big story in its own right. Yes. But you are you're nailing this about why this was leaked today. It's because it's the dog days of summer. It's because the NBA really prides itself on staying relevant in the summer. And you're totally right. Woj saying they're no closer than any other team is, uh, you know, it's, it proves that it's a non-story. And you know who yeah. it's disrespectful to? It's disrespectful to Jalen Brown. And it's all because ESPN wanted to float this out today. Yep, ESPN got some viewers. We're talking about it. People are talking about Boston. But we're diving deeper on it than others. Let's let Woj finish. Certainly ahead, Woj. they're engaged. They're interested and it's a conversation that's been ongoing as we head now into the fourth week uh, or as we're approaching the fourth week since Kevin Durant requested a trade from Brooklyn on June 30th. All right, make it stop is my thing. Uh, look, Kevin Durant requested the trade. Brooklyn is looking for a deal that makes sense for Brooklyn. Uh, I don't think Jalen Brown with two years left on his deal by itself gets that done uh, if you're Boston. Uh, and if you're Brooklyn, uh, but I, I think the more likely scenario is that, do you guys think that Durant in Brooklyn, where does Durant start the season? 
Where is he playing to start the season? I'm predicting it's going to be Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think it's Brooklyn. I, I just don't see a team willing to give up that much that Brooklyn's asking for. No, I mean, I, I think it's Brooklyn as well, and it's because, first of all, I think Brooklyn has a decent team. I don't really know why he wants to leave. I still feel like they're a contender, and I think it's best for his legacy. But then secondly, I feel like Danny Ainge screwed this all up with the Gobert deal in Minnesota. You know, Minnesota and Danny Ainge, the Jazz, they they screwed this all up considering Gobert produced like six first-round picks. And so now imagine what Durant's going to get, and there's no other NBA teams that are willing to pay that. I, I think uh, he's going to start in Brooklyn. I think it's a story because I think there's something in Kevin Durant who, that needs to be loved. He wasn't in the finals. His team didn't matter, got swept. Everybody was, you know, talking about him on Twitter and on podcasts and I think that there's Kevin Durant, I you know, rabbit ears, Kevin Durant. I think he needs to be wanted. He's one of he's like one of these kids that has to, you know, re- commit to a university then back out, then jump in the portal, be, you know, I he likes to be recruited. He likes to be wanted. I think he's tremendously insecure for uh, among the superstar, like a lot of professional athletes will find the insecurity in professional athletes. I've seen it firsthand. I think Kevin Durant is a rare uh, example of a, a especially insecure star athlete. Well, and you talk about that, and Durant always talks about how he's all about ball. He just wants to play basketball, but obviously he doesn't. He listens to every single thing everybody says, and you're right. Like It's such an easy target for people to kind of make fun of him for leaving and then going to the Warriors, winning championships, and then leaving and going to a worse situation with Kyrie and now wants out of there. Like It's just a real easy target to go after Durant, and so it's it's easy to put it on TV. Easy TV, easy ratings, and by the way, let's throw Boston in there because it's sexy. All right, the five at five, five big stories. Let's do it. The five at five. Well, Chicago's mayor, Lori Lightfoot. That's right. Lori Lightfoot is the mayor of Chicago. Well, Mayor Lightfoot revealed three proposals today for the renovation of Soldier Field. They're trying to keep the Chicago Bears at their home stadium of the last 50 years. And they're talking about putting a dome on Soldier Field. It's blasphemy. Where's Dick Butkus and Refrigerator Perry when you need them? $900 million to $2.2 billion proposal. The first proposal, there's three of them, would fully enclose the stadium, put a dome over it. The second would rebuild the end zones to make the stadium dome ready but not put the dome on it. The third option would turn Soldier Field into a multi-purpose stadium suited to host soccer games. That's right, and concerts and a range of other events. We have jumped the shark with Big Ten realignment and now Soldier Field with a dome. What, so they can host a roller derby or a World Cup game? I don't know. That's number one. Number two in our five at five, Danny Amendola, longtime NFL wide receiver. He got a bunch of interest from teams this offseason. He was a free agent. He's played 13 seasons in the league. Rams, Patriots, Dolphins, Lions, Texans won two Super Bowls. He's announcing that he's hanging it up. He's retiring. Told Adam Schefter he wants to pursue some other interests, including broadcasting. Good for Danny Amendola, who at age 36, 6,000 receiving yards, 24 touchdowns, had a pretty good career. 
based on where Danny Amendola was projected to uh, finish his career. He's hanging it up. He's headed to the broadcast booth. We'll see where he lands. Third thing in our 5 at 5, Matt LaFleur, coach of the Packers. He got a contract extension. The Packers quietly reached an extension with both LaFleur and general manager Brian Gutenkust and Vice President Russ Ball this offseason. So they made it quiet. Why was it so quiet? I've got my theories. I don't. I think they wanted to give those guys job security amid the turmoil that is potentially coming down the pipeline with Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. But the Packers are also 45 and 19 since this uh, this group came in, including 39 and 10 under Lafleur. Uh, so that ain't bad. That's by the way a record for the most wins by an NFL head coach in his first three seasons. 39. He beat George Seifert, who won 38 with the Niners in his first three seasons. Feels to me that the Aaron Rodgers thing has made the Packers value continuity, and they are quietly trying to get continuity. Number four in our five at five, Virginia Tech linebacker Issei Itute was accused of murder. The case stemmed from a catfishing scheme and he played at Virginia Tech he's now headed to Iowa Western Community College after being acquitted found not guilty of murder he was charged with a second-degree murder in the beating death of Jerry Smith in May 2021 Smith had portrayed himself as a woman online to lure college-aged men to his apartment Itute was a freshman linebacker at Virginia Tech at the time. He connected with Smith on Tinder. And later, uh, Smith ended up uh, in an altercation with Itute. He had a knife, and Itute was found not guilty. Self-defense, and the argument was found plausible. It's a crazy story. They'll make a movie about it someday. Um... You know, I don't know if there's a winner there, but he is not going to prison. He's going to community college. So that is a win for the college football player. Finally, fifth thing in our five at five. Oh, no, it's not going to be Kevin Durant. Let's go to the Major League Baseball and Baseball Players Association latest spat. The Players Association is has rejected Major League Baseball's proposal for an international draft. There's no draft internationally, which means that there's a qualifying offer system. There's an international signing period. There's a lot of bidding that goes on, a lot of money for high-profile players who have uh, a big upside. But uh, there are 600 players picked in the draft, and the international draft, the Players Association was dissatisfied with it. Major League Baseball wanted to create a system for the international draft. But Latin players who, by the way, favor a free market system, did not support the idea of a draft. They wanted to uh, enter the league as free agents. So Major League Baseball and the Players Association hashing out international draft. And by the way, they've decided not to do one. That is your five at five here in what is what? The last week of July? Are we in the last week of July already?
Is the summer going fast, guys? Yeah, it is the last uh, week, and you know that just means football's coming up, John. So it's you know somewhat good. I, I'm a little bummed about how fast summer's going though, because I, I, you know, I've been busy. You guys have been busy. Everybody's been busy. It feels like we got a we got a summer right now for like the next two or three weeks. We got a summer really hard. Well, the weather wasn't great either for a lot of like June also. So now it's finally getting hot and really nice outside. So I agree with you. Like you got to go, you got to go hard for the next couple of days. We're gonna really have to summer. All right, coming up, I want to talk about uh, the column I wrote on Sunday. And I want to, you know, we've spent all this time talking about realignment. You know, it leaves everybody feeling anxious. It leaves everybody feeling bad, worried about the future of college athletics. But I, I wrote on Sunday at johnconzano.com about what makes Pac-12 football great. And it really isn't, um, it isn't the, the games themselves. I mean, the games are necessary. But it's more like, at Stanford Stadium, parking in that grove of eucalyptus trees outside the stadium, or going walking through Reeser Stadium's parking lot and seeing a football rise above the tailgate, and then following the football and seeing some kid running underneath it, um, getting out of your car at the Rose Bowl and walking towards that sign on the main entry, that that's special. It makes it great. Uh, Tightwad Hill in in Berkeley at Memorial Stadium at Cal. That, that, that's great. Uh, Rice-Eccles Stadium uh, at Utah, the blue skies, the snow-capped mountains, it's great. How about Don Essig, the voice of Autzen Stadium, telling us it never rains at Autzen Stadium while it's raining. It makes it great. Mike Parker, unmatched game day emotion. What makes college football great in your mind? Only you have the answer to this. That's what makes this great. 503-417-7575. Tell me what you think makes college football great. Your answer's coming up. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We have not addressed the biggest news story of the day. The oven that we are in today. <laughs> Uh, are you guys happy to be indoors where you're uh, not out working uh, you know, with a jackhammer and a hard hat on asphalt, tarring a roof? You guys, aren't you guys happy about that? Very happy uh, in the air conditioning in this studio. I, I, you know, I came from a different place that didn't have air conditioning, so to have this, I love it. Air conditioning in the studio is great, and I'll tell you what, my apartment is a microwave with no AC, so it's <laughs> it's it's a good outlet to, to get to work and escape uh, the furnace that is my apartment. Sean's just going to stay in the studio all day. I love sleep that. Sleep there. Just sleep there, stay there. We had a host who did that years ago. Nobody knew. He moved from L.A. to the Portland market, and uh, he I noticed he had bed head a lot. <laughs> But it happens in radio. You get a weird assortment of people. Like right? there's a weird collection of people who gravitate towards media jobs anyway. Newspapers are probably the worst. Like you get people who are very particular, very, uh, you know, very persnickety, so to speak, about you know their chair being in the right place. Or then you get the next desk over, just a complete nightmare with people stacking papers. Like how do they find anything and then you go to the next desk over, and it's somebody who's really obnoxious. Like, it's just a, a interesting collection of individuals. I thought it was captured well by the Michael Keaton, Robert Duvall movie, The Paper. But, uh, look, this guy had bedhead all the time. And he was walking around in slippers. And so one day I said to him, you know, do you 
do you have an apartment? And he confided in me that he was sleeping at the radio station. You know, empty offices. They had a break room. There's a shower. Like, why would you need to live somewhere? So he was, he was just, he decided to do it for a couple of days. And then he was like, well, nobody seems to notice. They finally caught him, though. I think a cleaning staff member burst into an office one uh, one weekend and was uh, going to clean uh, vacuum and clean the office and realized he was asleep on the sofa. So uh, they put an end to that. Yeah, I mean, that seems like something he'd have to put in his contract or something. Hey, I'm going to spend a few nights, you know, every mm-hmm. Wednesday I'm spending the night here at the office. Is that okay? I think he meant well. I think he was looking for an apartment when he first got there. It's like that movie, that terminal movie where the guy's living in the airport. I think it was Tom Hanks in that movie. Somebody's living in the airport all the time. Did you guys see that movie? No idea what you're talking about. Me neither. You need to go see – you guys – have you – all right, let's just go back. Okay. Movie – uh, you never heard this story. This is a Washington Post story that turned into a movie. So they, it turns out that a guy who uh, was from, I'm going to get the details of this right, uh, but they found a guy that was living in the airport. And this was at a time in which, uh, let me get this. So um, I'm going to find this. Uh, I just talked about this with my teenager. The Terminal? Was, the Terminal is the movie. 2004 it came out. Tom Hanks was in it. And it was uh, billed as a comedy slash drama. I don't know how you do that. But it was, it was based on a true story. So there was a guy who lived in Terminal 1 of Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. And he lived there for 18 years, between 1988 and 2006. He had flown from Brussels to London through Paris, but he was sent back to Paris because he lost his passport. So he lived in the transit area of Terminal 1 at the Paris Charles de Gaulle Airport until 2006. Uh, and Steven Spielberg heard about it because he read a story about it and said, this is a fantastic uh, movie idea. He wanted a movie that could make you laugh and cry at the same time. So uh, it, it, it earned about $200 million, but the, you know, Tom Hanks played the role. But they put it in the United States. He flies into JFK, and he learns uh, he was from a fictional Eastern European country. He learns when he's at JFK that his country no longer existed. The United States does not recognize his country's government, so he's not permitted to enter the U.S., and he's not permitted to return home because his passport's not valid anymore. So they take his passport. And they tell him, stay here at the airport until we figure this out. So, um, you know, the whole movie's about, you know, Tom Hanks making friends at the airport, flight attendant. I think Catherine Zeta-Jones plays the flight attendant that he befriends. And um, he's his whole time, he's trying to get out of this airport. And, um, you know, and uh, it, it's not a bad movie. I mean, it's a decent premise for a movie, I will say. I mean, because I think, you know, I've had thoughts of like, oh, you know what, if things went wrong and I was homeless, where would I stay? You know, and so I look at places like, you know what, maybe I'd stay at the airport. Like, that's a good idea. Could work, you live at an airport? I mean, not anymore. Not with security, I don't think, anymore. Could you? <laughs> They'd probably kick you out. I mean, I, Fred, I worked at Fred Meyer back in the day, and they always had a homeless guy walking up and down the aisles, and it was fine. Like, everyone knew who he was, and you'd say hi to him and stuff. So I think this stuff happens. I, I've often wondered about the 24-hour fitness. Could you live in the 24-hour fitness? Like, they never close. Could you just go in there at night, 
And uh, would anybody notice if you were curled up in a ball in the yoga room taking a nap? Get a shower at it. I will, yeah. I will say, John, I have snuck into a few 24-hour fitnesses that have nice basketball courts. And <laughs> there, is a, there is nobody at the front desk. They just have like a little barcode to scan your scan your thing. But you know, I didn't have one. I just walked right in. So it, you know, it's, it's doable. You'd be in fantastic shape. Yeah, Everybody would be like, man, that guy just comes in here every night. He works out. He's here like six, seven hours. Little do they know, you'd be in the uh, you'd be in the hot tub, you'd be in the shower, sauna. you'd be napping, sauna. You know, you got your own luxury. And what would your rent be? What is what is a you know twenty four hour fitness charge you? Like I'm grandfathered in, so I get it super cheap. I think my rent would be like twenty eight dollars a month. You know, that's not bad. Hey, if things go bad, John. I mean, you got somewhere to stay. That's where I'm going if things go bad. Are we going to talk about what makes college football great? I want you to line up now. Is it Don Essig saying it never rains? Is it Mike Parker with a great play-by-play call? What makes college football great in your mind? I want you to tell me. 503-417-7575. I got fed up with all the negativity. I got fed up with all the talk about the Pac-12 conference being on the ropes or in trouble. I frankly just, uh, you know, woke up Sunday and was like, you know what, I, I, gotta, I need to focus on the positive. I need a little bit of positivity in my Sunday. And so I wrote a column on Sunday at johnconzano.com about what's right about the Pac-12 and football, right? No mention of the Big Ten. No mention of USC, UCLA. I just focused on the 10 remaining members and some of the things that cross my mind when it comes to what makes a college football game day or a Saturday or college football stadium experience in the Pac-12 conference. I want you to tell me what you think makes the Pac-12 go or what makes a game day a game day or what makes the Pac-12 special in your mind. And granted, I'm a tradition person. But for me, it was stuff like Don Essig, the legendary voice of Autzen Stadium. Don Essig, you know, people who have been to Autzen Stadium know Don Essig, he, he does this. Okay, fans, here's the weather report for today's game. It's 70 degrees, slight wind from the north, and some clouds. But you know the real weather report, it never rains at Autzen Stadium. There it is, Don Essig. I think that makes Autzen Stadium more special. It does. It adds to the game day experience. It's the same feeling I get when I park in the eucalyptus trees at Stanford and then I walk up to the, the stadium on game day. Or I'm at Cal and I look up from the press box and I see Tightwad Hill and the people sitting on the hill enjoying the game for free. Or I'm in Boulder, Colorado. And I walk up and I see the lights and the stadium lights at Folsom Field kind of lighting up the, the Denver sky or the Colorado, the Boulder skyline. And, and I think to myself, this is special. This is, you know, this is something that people who are here tonight are going to remember. This is great. And, you know, or it's maybe walking through the tunnel at, at a Rose Bowl or even the L.A. Coliseum. And, you know, that, that moment where you realize how old the stadium is and then, the stadium tunnel opens up, and there's a football field there. Uh, it's Mike Parker and Oregon State, you know, calling 
Call in a, a play-by-play call. Uh, in your mind, Stephen and Sean, what makes the Pac-12 special? Yeah, it's it's the traditions for me, and it's it's one of those things where I love to see a night game, you know, a big night game where you can just sense that the underdog is going to win at home, and you get that sense just that the crowd is right there and it's going to happen. It's just a different feeling in college football than it is in the NFL. So all across there, you know, all that kind of stuff is it for me. And, you know, like LSU's fan base – and their atmosphere is always just one of those things I've wanted to see. LSU night game. It's just those type of things where you just feel the feel the crowd just emotional, and it's all about the emotions. So it's all about emotion for me. To me, what makes the Pac-12 special is honestly kind of a detriment to the Pac-12 itself. It's the fact that it's there's a lot of parity in the Pac-12. It's like. Oregon lost to Arizona today, like that happened, or, you know, like uh, UCLA and Washington State are in triple overtime right now, like it's just a little bit wackier and a little bit crazier than other conferences, and, you know, in the SEC, like Alabama, they they hammer Vanderbilt, and, it, you know, you kind of, it's predictable, but the Pac-12 just seems the least predictable, and, or, yeah, the least predictable, and uh, yeah. that's kind of a, uh, it, it's a detriment, because you want teams in the playoff. I look at Husky Stadium in Seattle, and I, I look out over the water on the open end of the stadium, and I think, gosh, this is special. Or I'm in Tucson at an Arizona football game, and I can see the sun setting in the desert. Or I'm at an Oregon State game, and, hell, it's third down. I want to hear from listeners. I know this is a tricky one, but I really want you to reach deep, and I want you to share because, I, you know, people call in all the time. You know, we get the same callers sometimes. Uh, but I love when people call in and they go, hey, it's my first time calling in. You, you know, it prompted me to call in. But I want you to tell me what makes your college football experience in the Pac-12 special. What makes a game day a game day? 503-417-7575. Go ahead, Stephen. Were you yeah. going to say something? No, I was going to say yeah. something. I know Sean's answer, but what's your answer? Because you just played that chainsaw, and I just, I'm not even a Bee fan or Duck fan. I find it so annoying, and I find that <laughs> – I find the Ducks' horn when they score more annoying. What do you think is more annoying between the Ducks' horn when they score or the Bees' chainsaw? I think the chainsaw is a little hinky. Like, yeah. it, it's a little bit hokey, provincial. It has a little small town to it. But I actually think, like, something like that works <laughs> as long as you stay true to it, you know. They own it. That's the thing. They own it. And so, yeah, you're, yeah. it does work just as an outsider that has no emotional attachment to either of those. I just I can't stand either. I get Yeah, I get it. Uh, but, it, you know, I also think, like, it's Jerry Allen. It's it's uh, it's Mike Parker. It's, you know, David Shaw uh, on the sideline. I You know, I stood next to David Shaw once when Oregon was playing Stanford. I was on the sideline and last, you know, final seconds of the game, and Stanford was going to, attempt a game-winning kick, and, you know, I was right beside David Shaw, and he literally looked over at me, and he smiled. Like, they're going for the, you know, they're going for a game-winning tense situation. I'm looking at David Shaw to be like, is this guy just going to be, like, chewing on his gums right now? Because, you know, this college kid makes the kick, and Stanford wins. He misses it. Oregon's probably coming down the field and going to beat you. And Shaw was just like, you know, he didn't even look at the kick. He just kind of looked. He turned his back to the field. I looked at him. He looked at me. He smiled. Later, I asked him about it, and he says, I had no doubt. I had no doubt we're going to win it. It's that kind of thing, the personalities of the Pac-12, that that really get me going, too, because I look at, you know, I look at what we have seen in, you know, it over the years here in this conference. We've had some great battles between Oregon and Oregon State even. And I think, 
you know, to me, part of it is the rivalry games, you know, the rivalry games make it great. Uh, you know, Chip Kelly, remember, when, uh, I don't know if you guys were around here, but in 2011, you know, 2010, Chip Kelly got criticized because he said the Civil War game was just another game. You guys remember that? Were I, you around yeah, here? I do remember that. Okay. He said it's just another game. Everybody up in arms. Oh, my gosh. But it was just Chip Kelly going, all games count as one. It was he the was, win the day motto that they had. Yes. Like today, this week's game is the most important game. And then I, I laughed so hard in November of 2011 when, you know, Chip, what do you think now? A year later, after he got roasted for saying it was just another game. It's a Super Bowl. Every game's a Super Bowl for us. So I don't know how we can get bigger than that. That's why when people say we diminish it, we're not diminishing. It's the biggest game we're ever going to play. So it's the biggest game ever. <laughs> it's the biggest game ever is this week's game. How about Pat Kilkenny, the uh, a- acting athletic director at Oregon, taking shots at Oregon State over the, over the Civil War outcome? You know, I, I just think over the years we have seen some remarkable things that make it special. That was one of the happiest days of my life, Saturday night. And I maybe I'm just that shallow. It was a great night to be a duck. And, you know, I don't know about you guys. I was so sick and tired of hearing about the Beavers. And, you know, the Beavers are disadvantaged. And we have all this stuff. And that's nonsense. Football is a game of toughness. It isn't about what color your uniform is. We went out in the field and kicked their ass. I mean, come on. Let it, that's an athletic director talking about his rival university. Like, this, that kind of thing to me makes college sports in general what they are. Or Jerry Allen on a call, you know, losing, uh, being emotional as, you know, Oregon is going to the national championship game. I mean, that, that to me is what makes it special. It has nothing to do with Fox, ESPN. ESPN Plus, it has nothing to do with anything. Just the fact that, like, we can get, uh, you know, uh, a great call at the end of a game and an emotional call as Oregon is going to the national championship game. And, I, you know, you guys remember that. It was, it was big time. And I think that's what makes college football for me and the Pac-12 special. It's the people. It's the traditions. It's the Nerf football in the air. It's uh, the little hole-in-the-wall places that people stop off on the way to the game in some of the college towns. I just think that's what makes it special. How, you guys have other things that make it special in your mind. Yeah, ironically, as as much as we are kind of sick of hearing about the TV networks and how much power they have, uh, to me, a big part of what makes college football special is waking up and uh, watching college game day. Or, you know, 5.30 p.m., you get the biggest game of the week, Kirk Herbstreit, Chris Fowler. Or, um, you know, Gus Johnson and uh, Joel Klatt calling the Red River rivalry. Like, uh, that that game always goes crazy. So, uh, you know, right now I think there's frustration with the TV networks, but I do think that ESPN and Fox both do a good job with their coverage. Yeah, as a sports fan, you know, growing up in the, you know, in the Pac-12 area, Northwest area, it was always just when I was playing college basketball and I, you know, I played at CCC, I had a decision to make to where I wanted to go the four year. And one of the things they said was they were playing the University of Oregon that next year. And I was like, you know what, I get to play at Matt Court. And I think that's just going to be so awesome because I've seen all the games that they've had where the hoop is shaking behind because uh, it's so loud. I've seen where they're, you know, booing Kevin Love and they're yelling really bad things. Like, I would love to play at a court like that. So that was just one of those things where it's like, it, like you said, it's the emotions. It's the it's the you know the rituals that they have. It's, it it is it's beyond like I can't even explain 
just you know growing up like how big those things are it's Kenny Wheaton's gonna score it's it's the you know the song the Matt Kearney song that they play you know uh, coming home you know it's you know it's uh, being at Washington State and realizing they've got their own song you know it's it to me it's those experiences that you have and it's not isolated to the Pac-12 hell I covered the Big Ten years ago uh, you know I, I lived in Tallahassee and covered Florida State and Indiana and Purdue and other places like everybody's got stuff that makes it special but I just think you know if you are uh, a college football fan in the Pacific Northwest or in the western part of the United States or or even a Pac-12 fan like you know that there are moments you are going to go back to throw the ball sets up looks throws toward the corner of the end zone it is intercepted intercepted the Ducks have the ball down to the 35 the 40 Kenny Wayne's going to score Kenny Wayne's going to score Kenny the 10 touchdown Kenny Wayne on the interception the most improbable finish to a football game I mean man I wasn't there but I get chills when I see that in Oregon plays that in the pregame. And, you know, and likewise, Mike Parker, you know, when there's a big play at Oregon State. Marion back in shotgun, rides Ryan Nall. The big fella hits a seam. Nall 50, 45, 40, 30, 25, 20, 15, 10, 5. Nall takes it the distance. Touchdown, Beavers again. Mike Parker, nobody more excited than Mike Parker when big things happen. Look, I was a kid. I can tell you, like, you know, I, I think about this all the time. I was, like, nine years old. Uh, you know, my parents got season tickets to go see San Jose State football. Like, it wasn't big-time football. It wasn't the SEC. It wasn't the Big Ten. It wasn't even the Pac-12 or the Pac-10 at that time. It was San Jose State. But Jack Elway was the coach at San Jose State. And San Jose State, for what they were doing at the time, they were pretty good. They had some players that would go on and play in the NFL. They had a running back named Gerald Wilhite who went on to play for the Broncos. Steve Clarkson went on to the CFL. They had Tim Kearse, a wide receiver who was dangerous, lethal. They eventually got Mervin Fernandez a few years later, like Swerve and Mervin went to the NFL. But, it, you know, they had some guys that could play, and they were fun. And to me, I was nine years old, and what I remember is throwing the Nerf football in the parking lot. I don't remember all the games they won. I remember Randall Cunningham was playing at UNLV, and San Jose State played them. And I remember seeing him and thinking, gosh, that guy's a really good player, but I remember uh, sneaking hot dogs into the stadium. My parents made hot dogs at home, and we wrapped them in tin foil, and we smuggled them in like we were uh, smuggling uh, drugs over the uh, over the border. Uh, you know, it was like like we were the uh, the mules. Uh, it was like a Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we were smuggling hot dogs into the stadium. We were playing catch in the parking lot, and I can just remember leaning over the rail uh, at the end of the game. You know, as the players were coming up the ramp, high fiving the players, and it was magic. It was absolute magic. It was everything that was right about college football. It had nothing to do with TV. had nothing to do with the playoff. had nothing to do with money. It was special. That stuff's going on all the time in the Pac-12 conference. I'm worried about it. I'm worried about the loss of tradition. I'm worried about the Rose Bowl going away. I'm worried about what is this conference going to look like. Who's going to lead? Does it splinter? Does it implode? But, you know, I'm going to tell you, when this college football season happens, and I'm at Autzen Stadium, and I'm at Research Stadium, and I'm at other venues, I'll be there for... I'll be there in Atlanta when Georgia and Oregon play in that opener. 
I'm going to fly to Fresno and see Fresno State and Oregon State in week two. Like, I'm starting to book my flights and get my schedule, hotels, all that stuff locked in. But I can tell you, like, sometimes the highlight for me has nothing to do with the game. Sometimes it's just being at the game and walking in and seeing the families tailgating, people barbecuing, tradition. Uh, you know, they've been there for years in a certain spot. They, these are their friends. They, you know, they know each other. They know they invite each other to weddings and, and funerals. And, and, you know, they're in it together. You guys, you're out there listening to this. And I know that tradition and what makes college football special on game days in the Pac-12, I know that you relate to it. Well, and you touched on it with the Rose Bowl. I remember in 94, I was seven years old, but I remember what a big deal it was that the Ducks were in the Rose Bowl playing Kajana Carter and the Penn State Nittany Lions. Yes. Like, well, I'm not even a Ducks fan. My family's not Ducks fans, but we watched that game. I remember watching it. And you look at last year, Utah making the Rose Bowl, how excited them and their fan base really was to get oh, there. Like, yes. those are the things, like, this is, it'd be tough to miss if the Pac-12 does, you know, crumble, which we all hope it doesn't. Yeah, I don't think it's going to crumble. I think it is going to pull together, but I think it's going to be different without the L.A. schools involved in it, if that's, if that's where this heads. And I hope that they, the 10 remaining schools do pull together. But you're right. Like, you know, I've had the, uh, the blessing of being able to see all these games, different places, all different conferences all over the country. And I can still tell you, like, you know, I get to cover Rose Bowls or whatnot. But some of the highlights for me are watching and living vicariously through the Duck fan, through the Beaver fan, the Washington fan, the Washington State fan. As I'm walking through the parking lot, I'm envious of the experience they're having. And I have a smile on my face often because I get it. I get why it's special, even though I'm not there with my family. I'm walking through it, and I see you, and I see you at the tailgate, and I fist bump you or you yell at me, hey, I listen to the show, and I love you for it. But I love what you're doing, and I love that it's special. we got to keep that going. we got to keep talking about it, even amid all this crap that's going on with television and defection and expansion. What really is special about college football has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with your experience on game day. we got to continue to own that. Leave that here. We have more ahead. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, I made a list, a to-do list of things I wanted to get to on today's show. I got to the heat. I checked that off. We talked about Pac-12 at length. Checked that off the list. I had a few other things that I wanted to get to. Uh, uh, we talked about the World Championships. I was underwhelmed. Sean, you were you were thrilled with it. I was a little underwhelmed because I thought it would have a bigger ripple effect in the region. But I think the track and field people, much like the soccer people, when the World Cup uh, comes to the Northwest or uh, you know, qualifying matches come, they're very happy with it. Uh, we haven't talked about the Phil Knight Legacy event or the Phil Knight Invitational event. Did you guys see the uh, the schedules are out for these things? Oh, I did, and I love it. As a college basketball guy, it's, uh, it's going to be a good one. By the way, John in the Bay Area says we didn't bring up Troy Dye dancing to shout and singing the stadium mm. at Oregon, Autzen Stadium in the third quarter. I think that's a big one. That is you a big know? one, yeah. Sean, what do you think of that one? Yeah, that's a that's a classic tradition. Troy Dye was uh, an icon at Oregon because of his play on the field, but because also because of uh, moments like that. 
Yeah, like that. But let's talk a little bit about the uh, the schedule for those events, the Phil Knight Invitational schedule and then the Phil Knight Legacy schedule. For people who don't know, these are two separate tournaments. They have a men's bracket and a women's bracket for each. These will be taking place in November, right around Thanksgiving. It's going to be a very busy week, that Thanksgiving week, because you're going to have uh, the Oregon-Oregon State game taking place that weekend, but you're also going to have Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday games featuring North Carolina playing Portland. University of Portland is going to host North Carolina at Moda Center on ESPN on Thursday, November 24th. Uh, also that day, Iowa State will play Villanova at Moda Center, and UConn will play Oregon at Moda Center, and Alabama will play Michigan State at Moda Center. That is on the Thursday. The Friday games will be held at Veterans Memorial Coliseum, as will Saturday. And then they will play championship game and uh, third-place game and fifth-place game and seventh-place game and all that. But Oregon uh, will get UConn in the opening game. And University of Portland and Shantae Leggins will get North Carolina uh, in that tournament. That's great. Women's games as part of the Phil Knight Invitational. North Carolina will be playing Oregon at the Childs Center on Thursday, November 24th. That's a big one. It'll be on ESPNU. Iowa State will play Michigan, and then they will; uh, those four teams will play off. The Phil Knight Legacy schedule is out. Different event, but Duke is part of that one, and Oregon State draws Duke in the opening game on Thursday, November 24th. They will play on ESPN at Veterans Memorial Coliseum. So we're going to have a whole bunch of college basketball in our state and some big-time programs visiting. Florida will play Xavier. Purdue will play West Virginia, and Portland State has drawn Gonzaga. So they will play uh, as Jace Coburn's team will play against Gonzaga. In the women's bracket of the Phil Knight Legacy, UConn and Duke will play on Friday, November 25th. Iowa will play Oregon State. Scott Ruick's team will be hosting Iowa at the Childs Center on Friday. And then those four teams will play off uh, for third place in a championship. So of the games I mentioned, you can only see one in person. Steven and Sean, who are you going to go see? Ooh, man, that is a uh, difficult decision for me. I think for me, I actually, and this is going to be pretty surprising, John, I'm really a fan of uh, UP right now. Yep. I was on there last year. They uh, they won their first ever postseason game. They have a lot of momentum going forward. I know it's probably not going to be a close game against North Carolina, but that's going to be a top five team facing off against uh, University of Portland, who I think has a lot of decent players on the team. So I think for me, I love the local, I love small college basketball. I think that's my choice. To me, I'm really excited to see Portland State. I got the chance at the BFT Foundation Golf Tournament uh, to talk to Jace Coburn, and I think it's really cool that they get to play with the big dogs. So, yeah. uh, of course, I, I'm rooting for Gonzaga and Oregon as well. I, I like both those teams, but I'm really excited to see some Portland State hoops this year. And it's I think def- you, it's yeah. definitely set up for Gonzaga to face Duke in the championship, which yes. which would be an awesome match, so hopefully it gets that. Yeah, these are the kinds of matchups you could foresee happening you know, from a Pac-12 standpoint, if that loose partnership with the ACC came down the pipeline, like you could get Carolina and Duke playing Oregon and Stanford in a four-team event every year as part of the college basketball early season or maybe even the Thanksgiving break. But for me, uh, I'm going to agree with you, uh, Stephen, on Shantae Leggins. I'm buying what he's selling. I think University of Portland uh, better hang on to him with two hands. I, I told him recently that I felt like he had a great first year. and Unbelievable, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and he downplayed it. He was like, ah, you know, I keep, he goes, I think about the games we should have won, which is fine. That's what coaches do. 
But, you know, Terry Porter was terrible in, in conference play in his last three seasons. Shante Liggins was pretty damn good. All right, we're back tomorrow with another great show. Grab a podcast. Have a great night, everybody. And remember, what makes the Pac-12 special is good for us all.